He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, September 25, episode 63. Featuring, as always, our troubadour, Dave Gunders. His song this week, Just Try Me. Thanks for sampling my show. I hope you've been here before, but regardless, welcome. This is a special show. Please like me, follow me, subscribe to me. I'm on YouTube, all the podcast platforms. And I lay down a new episode every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Just like when I was hosting on 710 KNUS from 9 to noon. And I did that for over five years. And a lot of Craig's Lawyers Lounge sessions were held every week. In fact, till my mic got cut, Scott Robinson was waiting in the wings. So who's the leader of the lawyers who have been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge by appearance? Well, we have a new second-place person. It's Michael Bailey with 8th. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got dogs. I love sports, so does Michael, and we even talk about dog trusts in the back half of the show today. But the Craig's Lawyers Lounge leader is George Brockler with his 12th appearance today. Perhaps his most courageous, certainly the longest appearance, podcasts afford that kind of opportunity. George and I did a lot of radio broadcasts together during Kaplis and Silverman days on KHOW. I liked it when he filled in for Dan, and he liked it too. So we got to know each other really pretty darn well, and I'm honored that he did this interview with me, even though he now has his show on 710 KNUS, and that makes for an interesting situation. And yes, a lot of interesting names come up. Joe Oltman, who I first became aware of through George Brockler, who brought him on as an unusual advertiser and he would appear on the show. I never heard of that kind of business advertising. I asked George Brockler about that, and we talk about Donald Trump, the big lie, Randy Corcoran, and January 6th, the insurrection, where Donald Trump says the people are being persecuted. If you want to skip right to that part of the show, skip about five minutes forward. Because another reason I had George Brockler on is back in the day when he was a county court prosecutor, he prosecuted a guy named Bob Enyart. Bob Enyart had a heck of an interesting life here in Denver. He passed away a couple weeks ago. He died of COVID. He refused the vaccine because he said it was made by using abortion parts. Anyway, the man was a guy of his conviction, and he never backed down, and I got to know him. 
through the media, through the years, both of us living in Denver. He had Denver Bible Church, but the most memorable encounter between us was the one where I encountered him sort of in my neighborhood. I don't live in the three-acre, five-acre beautiful properties in Cherry Hills Village, but I don't live far away. And back in the day, this was 2011, there was a big fundraiser in Cherry Hills Village for the presidential campaign of Mitt Romney. And my dogs and my boys who were young and they were on scooters and we were going down the street when we heard a big noise, we walked toward it. A lot of cars, which is unusual in Cherry Hills Village. And then we started hearing from a distance the chant, Romney funds abortion, Romney funds abortion. And you don't have to guess what that sounded like because even back then we had some technology, not like it is now with the iPhone 13. Are you going to get one of those? Anyway, it was good enough for me to record some stuff and then we put it on Capitalist and Silverman. We had Bob on the next day, but I have sound bites. The one I took with my boys and I'm handing my phone to my son, Sam, who had to be in early elementary school then, and Ben was going to be my reporter, and I brokered a deal where Bob could go in and talk to Mitt Romney, but Ben would be along as a witness to record it because Bob was worried that Team Romney was making a deal they would not honor, and ultimately they kind of did squelch on it. But it was wild because... There were about 150 well-heeled people in a beautiful backyard, but 20, as Bob calls them, Christian protesters made it impossible for anybody to even talk inside that yard on a beautiful day because they were so loud and the Romney people were begging for them to stop. It was good constitutional story for my kids. We talked about it, free speech, but what about their rights? This guy's running for president. This guy's protesting abortion. And then Bob Enyart and I talked, and I asked him some questions, and we're going to play the sound. It might be a little weak, but we have a YouTube channel, The Craig Silverman Show on YouTube, and you can watch this. And here's the cool thing about the internet. I went on Google and I put quotes around Romney funds abortion, close quote, and there was the video that my sons and I took back in June of 2011. Listen to this and enjoy. Romney funds abortion! Romney abortion! By the time we Romney got there, Romney funds abortion! Romney funds abortion! Romney funds they Romney told me if we stopped, we could go Romney in and ask Romney a question. Romney but then when we got there, abortion. we stopped, and by the Romney corner, they said, abortion. no, no, no Romney deal. Funds abortion. So. Romney funds abortion. Okay. If I start screaming, can I ask a question? No. Bob, what are you going to ask? I'm going to ask him about uh, Romney Care, that he created the health connector that funds tax-funded abortion. 
What if he says that was part of the rulemaking? I've read his book, and he said it got out of his control with the rulemaking. Yeah, he... Don't back into that place. He created the health care connector. And, he put and people he, and, on... And you're saying that inevitably leads to a fundamental abortion? He lied on and veto Romney care eight times. Even though funding abortion is a major Republican issue, he did nothing to prevent it. Yeah, if you're on your staff, or if you come out of prison, you have a dog. <laughs> and light of that uh, kennel on the carpet. Craig, you're with the media. Hopefully you can confirm that they're not lying to us. Well, Bob, I'm, I'm, my son is chronically... Yeah. Yeah. The, the protest has stopped because of their offer. Job, ask a question. Take my son in too. Well, yeah, you you ask? Go ahead. Take him along. If you got Dan. Ben. Good. I'm Ben. Your lyrics. <laughs> You're right. You're right, Senator Brown. So Dan so, Silverman is going to record. Ben. Guys. Ben. Uh, yeah, ben. here. So I thought it was an interesting encounter, but Bob Anyard really was excited about meeting with little old me. He thought I was big time, and when I invited him on our show, he was telling about that, and my goodness, the guy's been on real time with Bill Martin. Not real time, it was politically incorrect. Back in the day, he was a regular guest. Of course, Bill Maher made fun of him, but Bob was indefatigable, and the guy never took a backward step. And I'm going to talk about it with George Brockler, but first I want you to hear Bob Enyard talk about this event from his perspective and his encounter with little old me. And toward the end, he talks about the Republican state chairman being there, Ryan Call. Ryan's name comes up over and over this show because he just got disbarred for stealing, that's the allegation, from a Trump pack. Now, that is anti-Trump. I don't advise that. Opposing Trump, yes. Stealing from Trump, no. Anyway, listen to this. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. I am Bob Inyart, the pastor of Denver Bible Church. What an event last night. Mitt Romney came to Denver for a fundraiser, and there were about 20 Christians there outside protesting, including Joe Scott. Joe, welcome to Bob Inyart Live. Hey, Bob, big news, I heard. One hour from now, one hour, you'll be on Capless and Silverman on KHOW at 6.30 a.m., I'm excited. Yeah, that should be fun. At the Romney fundraiser last night, who happens to come along but Craig Silverman? I couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> it was something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And Craig stayed with – he stayed there Yes. Uh, for about a half hour or more videotaping. Yeah. And he asked us a lot of questions, and it was very interesting. The question is whether last night's protest ranks as one of the top ten all-time 
best protest Absolutely. of the Denver Christian community. You think it does? Oh, I think it does. It had its moments, I'll tell yeah, you that. Yeah, it sure did. It was very interesting, and maybe in a couple minutes we'll try to think. I'd like to try to think of some of what are the top ten events. But the purpose of these events is to get the message out that Christians would be mature, would learn what it means to be a Christian, to stand up for the truth, not to be lied to, but to be salt and light and to tell the truth. Absolutely so important, Bob. Yeah, because when we don't tell the truth, when we allow people to lie to us, then the body of Christ gets used by child killers and those who promote homosexual marriage and the destruction of the family and who eventually persecute Christians. That's right. Yeah, That's absolutely right. And it's frightening to see how much that happens. So it's so important to get this message out. It doesn't get out often. Mm-hmm. So I got to talk with, you know, briefly, but for a minute or two, with Senator Allard, uh, U.S. Congressman Bob Beaupre, uh, the chairman of the Colorado Republican Party, Ryan Paul, who all stopped a moment to talk to the protesters. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, this is a big get for me, even though he's been on 11 times before in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. George Brockler, the title holder, the repeat champion. He's a big shot now. I rank him as one of the better gets for my podcast. Thanks for doing it, George. I think you're in the top three in the Colorado GOP. Oh, my gosh. That's a huge compliment, Craig. Thanks. And any time. I love being on. Don't you want to know who the other two are? I would like to know who the other two are. Lauren Boburn and Ken Buck. I've heard of her. Ken Buck. You may I've know heard of him, guy. too. Yeah, I think he's been They're in the lounge. In about, he's been in the lounge about five times. Ken Buck. Mm. That's impressive. You've ever had Lauren Bobert on? She's not uh, a lawyer. In fact, uh, I'm not oh, sure she's so a high school graduate. Congressperson's lounge. No, well, I'm, I, it's not that. I would love to have her on. Maybe you can arrange it, but. I just want to commend you, first of all, on that great victory in the STEM school shooting. Uh, talk about a guy who's persistent and stays with it. I'd hate to be prosecuted by George Brockler because you're so darn good at it. 
not only were you a successful, what was it, two-term, and then you got term-limited in the 18th, did a great job. And I've never seen a prosecutor at the top, the elected guy, do more important trial work than you did. I don't know how y'all, you get it all done with four kids and and, and you broadcast. Uh, you're amazing. And I have uh, my memories of our relationship, but you used to come in when Dan and I did the show and we had our busy law practices and you'd say, one, gosh, this is fun. But you'd also say, I don't know how you do it. And I throw that right back at you. I don't know how you do it. Um, I, and I think you know this too. It's a team effort and not just for the big cases. Like there's no way a single person can get into the end zone on those giant logistically challenging evil cases. But the same thing with the other stuff that, that we do, there's no way I could do this without family support. And really my wife's a superhero. And so it's, uh, it's never just me. I get a lot of the accolades. I get to be the front man for stuff, but there's no way you can do it on your own. Right. But you like a challenge. You're also a columnist for the Denver Post, and you write powerful, well-written columns week after week. Congrats on that. I try to do my best for the Colorado Sun. What's your process? How do you go about it? It's hard, and I don't know how you do it every week, Craig. No, I, I'm, 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 like... I'm every two weeks. I, I was every week for a while, okay. but, but now I'm back to every two weeks. That's it, hard. And that's it, a lot. It's hard. It's, yeah, it's just tough. I don't think people appreciate that. Like, um, it takes a lot, one, to have an idea that you think people might read and appreciate. That takes a lot. And then, two, you know, rarely are you just winging it. Rarely is it just like Craig's diatribe or George's thoughts for the day. I mean, you want to get some research. You talk to people. You want to make sure what you're saying is right. And uh, it's weird, but sometimes columns ring a bell and sometimes they don't. So you know, my goal is I want to make a difference to the conversation, but on a competitive level, I want to be number one. I want to be the columnist with the most clicks and reads, um, but I don't want to do it to, uh, out of sensationalism or something like that. I want to, I want to advance the, the conversation and, and my hat's off to Megan Schrader, who's the editorial page editor. You know, she doesn't have to have as many conservative voices in that part of the paper she does, but she's been good to me and said, Hey, let's give this thing a shot. It's been, oh man, I don't know, over a year and a half now. She's like, let's give this thing a shot and see how it goes. And it's been going well. Yeah. It's a must read because you don't pull your punches there. Usually going after crime issues that rings a bell with a lot of people. I'm going to write a column this week and this won't air until Saturday. And we're talking on Thursday evening, but you and I discussed it before this interview started, and it's about Bob Enyart. And I encountered him. He was a longtime Denver clergyman who used to appear on Bill Maher's show, Politically Incorrect. He did a lot of things to God publicity, including condemning AIDS patients, whatnot, but he also got prosecuted, I believe it was in Jefferson County, by a really sharp young prosecutor. You remember who that was, George? It was a far less gray-haired and wrinkled me uh, way back in the late 90s, probably 97, if I had to guess. 
what happened? How did you get involved? Well, the, the thumbnail sketch of the case is Bob had remarried and along the way had gotten some stepkids out of the marriage. And one night he took a belt to the backside of, I want to say it was a seven-year-old. If it's a little older than that, I apologize. But a seven-year-old broke the skin on his backside. Turns out that boy had an older brother that was also at that home. And he reported it to their father, who was a sergeant at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. And he did the right thing. He didn't take matters in his own hands. He called up the appropriate police, which I think were Lakewood. And they came out and investigated, charged Bob Enyer with child abuse. And Bob, of course, um, in his own self-righteous, remorseless way, said, I'm going to trial. I think it went to trial before me and hung or mistried in some way. And then uh, I inherited the case as a relatively young prosecutor and tried it and uh, convicted Bob, and he went to jail. Was it in county court? Was it a misdemeanor? County court. It was a misdemeanor in county court. His counsel was Rose Staten, good man, um, good defense attorney. He had the benefit of something Craig, you and I never have had, and that is a southern accent which is deceptive, but also in a way, um, credibility building. Like, I just think that my sense of it is non-Southern jurors hear that accent and they think, this guy can't be lying to us. You know what I mean? Sounds like Matlock. (laughs) It's funny you say Um, that. I I once got to introduce Ben Carson at the Western Conservative Summit. We met back in the green room and he said, he took note of my voice, as people sometimes do. Yeah. And he said, yeah, what's your accent? I said, Colorado. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm in a fourth so, generation yeah. Colorado, so I don't know where he get the accent. Yeah. But Bob Enyard, back to him. He must have uh, been one of the more entertaining uh, witnesses you've ever cross-examined. Yeah, he was. He was um, completely remorseless at one point with a picture of the broken skin on the backside of this boy. Um, he proclaims to the jury that he would like to see that picture blown up and hung over the boy's bed with the caption, this is how much I love you. Because his position was this spoil the rod or spare the rod, spoil the child. And, uh, and he just said that proudly. And I have to tell you, it was a cringe moment for those six jurors to be like, are you crazy? There was, I just think he couldn't read the room and maybe that's true, not just of that courtroom in Jefferson County in 97, but read the room in terms of the state of Colorado and the country that he's in. I just, some of the stuff that he did, I, I, and you've described it. I simply can't wrap my mind around as a Christian. I cannot understand it. I know. And I encountered him and he talked about, and I'm going to play this sound after our interview. Uh, he, disrupted a fundraiser that I walked by and sort of in the neighborhood and they were screaming Romney funds abortion against Mitt Romney as he tried to raise money to beat Barack Obama. Anyway, Bob Enyard is now, he's on the other side. He passed away from COVID. He was outspoken that he would not take the vaccine. He tied it to abortion experimentation And just like George is saying, and just like I witnessed that day when I talked to Bob when he was holding that unbelievable demonstration you can watch on YouTube, I'm going to put it up there, he never backed down, right? He never admitted that he was wrong. He was certain that he was right. 
Well, he certainly had the conviction of his beliefs. That is true. I mean, you see a lot uh, of these hosts. But it also cost him. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to put out another exhibit, which is a lot of the anti-vaxxers who unfortunately catch COVID and die, a lot of them, like that guy Valentine in Tennessee, said, my God, please get the vaccine on his deathbed. He changed, but no such back down from Bob Enyard, who passed away. Uh, with his convictions. Yeah, I, I obviously feel bad for his loved ones, the people that uh, that cherished him and loved him, and you know there were those folks. But uh, it, his self-righteousness is really what cost him his liberty in our case. I, I really feel like he had a chance to come in and apologize and talk about lessons learned and things that and when the judge asked him at sentencing, you know, what do you want your kids to learn from this case and your conviction? And his answer was just very confident. Uh, I'd like them to know that our criminal justice system can be wrong, too. <laughs> I thought, there you go. And the judge said, hey, I appreciate your input. You're going to jail. Um, but again, it was uh, you, you can't you can't fault the guy for not standing behind his words. He did that. You don't have to agree with his words, but he had the courage of his convictions for sure. Right, and he would call into the radio and sometimes to try to convert me, and it was good natured. Even that day at the Romney demonstration, he kind of had that, I don't know, Hollywood politically incorrect, he could banter back and forth with you. Did you ever do that with him or you couldn't because he had counsel? Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you know that, but everybody else, whether it's Bob Enyard or the Aurora Theater or Shooter or anyone, people ask all the time, did you ever have a conversation with them? And what they don't appreciate is what you just said, which is uh, that's just not how the game is played. If you have counsel, you're going to have to talk to counsel. That, that's it. So I never had a conversation with Bob ever. That's why it was so cool to prosecute the Capitol Hill rapist, Quentin Wortham, who represented himself. I got to go to the jail and talk to him, and I learned a lot about a serial rapist. Anyway, wow. back to what you're doing. You're a Nine News legal analyst, and you're kind of a free agent. You do all these things. You're still a lawyer, and... Everybody wonders if you're going to run for governor or senator. Are you? Um, I don't think I'm going to do that this cycle. Um, you know, 2022, I expect to be a pretty good rebound year for Republicans nationwide and in the state of Colorado. Some of what, you know, you have to consider at, at my place is, one, what will the household sustain? And that's been an issue before. I mean, I don't know if you remember, Craig, but back in 2015, I was heavily recruited to run against Michael Bennett. And I'd gotten real close to making the decision to do that. But, you know, my kids were then five years younger than they are now. And I just thought, I can't, I can't do this. I and mean, it's tough enough to be a good father when you're home all the time. It's just harder when you're not. And I even felt that during the race for attorney general. Uh, there was a, a forum I had with Phil. It was in Denver, well attended. Sean Boyd did the uh, the moderating of it. And one of the questions was, um, what's your takeaway from the campaign or how has the campaign been? And of course, Phil was like, oh, it's one of the most rewarding things in, in my life and getting to meet Colorado, all that stuff you might say, you know, 
be suspicious of and think maybe that's political maybe that's legit i don't know i was so burned out at that point just the length of the day i remember saying it sucks it really sucks i said i know i'm supposed to stand here and say it's just so great to travel across the state and get to see the state meet people and there's aspects of that that are true i said but right now as i stand here and talk to you i am missing my son's baseball playoff game and i can't tell you how much that eats away at me i mean because the politics matter this job i want to do i'll do a great job for colorado but you want to know where my mind is? My mind is, what's my boy doing on the diamond? I said, and that's what makes this thing so, so damn tough. So yeah, <laughs> I, I feel that. I feel that now, too. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think about you in a lot of contexts. Once I was moderating a debate, an early Republican primary debate, and you were a leading candidate for governor. So if you want to stay home, you could be a governor. And... Uh, that's one of the positions that I talked about, and I'm not going to press you too hard because the other ways sure. I think about you, we did a ton of radio together. You would fill in when Dan was we gone, did. and I loved it because our fun. band was a lot of fun. Did you love it? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I did. It was great. A lot of fun. I think so too. And then I remember the Boulder debate, the presidential primary, Donald Trump was there. You oh, were yeah, there yeah. working for Channel yep, 7. That's right. I was working for the radio you got station. That, you got that picture of me. You got that great picture of me, Craig did, of me standing, talking to different media outlets. But me, right to my left was Donald Trump, and left and left of him, I think, was Ben Carson. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was just a great picture. I'm going to post that. And uh, it, it was fantastic. <laughs> and... I also remember when the Aurora Theater Massacre happened because I had done a death penalty case. I was asked by the Denver Post to write a column in favor of why this guy should get the death penalty, and David Lane yeah. uh, wow. went the other way. I, th I think Carol was still the DA then. And, but um, anyway, you were good enough to say you liked that column, and uh, you yeah. and I are in a club that just not a lot of Colorado prosecutors are in, and it's prosecuting a death penalty case it's different and my god i know how hard you worked on that um it, it was an amazing thing and to deal with all those victims I, i'm just telling you that uh the community can't thank you enough you, you put in a su superior effort you got to look back and and that had well how would you rank that in terms of events in your life Professionally, one of the top. And, and you know, I got assigned with Steve Jensen. I know you know Steve way back in the day, back in 99, to Columbine. And and those cases ended up resolving through pleas. But um, the two guys that sold the guns to the Cleveland Harris were named Martin Manus and Phil Duran. And, you know, we didn't know they were going to plead. And then we ended up having this huge, at the time, biggest sentencing thing there could have ever been. But I remember as we were going through the early stages of that even going to Columbine High School, I remember thinking, my God, this will be the biggest, worstest, most horrible case I'm ever going to handle. And I was wrong. <laughs> That's so sobering. And then you end up with this Aurora thing, which just as a number of magnitude, it was bigger in terms of just the attempt murder and the, and the carnage um, and a single shooter. But, you know, you talk about that club, that death penalty club. It is one thing to campaign on or to even talk politically about, yeah, I'm in favor of the death penalty. I'm in favor. It, it was another thing entirely 
to end up being faced with the decision that only one person on the planet Earth could make, right? Like there's only 22 elected DAs, governor, AG, they can't seek death, not in this case. Uh, federal government, you have to go through the you know, DOJ and the president. And to sit there and stare at that paper for a moment, even after you've made the decision and think, man, when I write my name on this, I am starting the machinery of government against another human being to take their lives as a result of what they did in taking 12 others and, and, and trying to kill hundreds. Um, that's a sobering moment. It's just not, for me, it just wasn't easy. It was uh, something I really had to spend a long time thinking about. And I've told the story before, but between talking with the victims who all had different opinions and strongly held different opinions and talking with uh, our priest, our local priest, talking with my dad, talking with Marsha and, not so much saying to those people, tell me what you think the right thing to do is, but it's just having conversations about it and what it means and, and the impact it would have. I mean, for my wife, it was never should he or shouldn't he. It was what's this going to do to us, right? Like what, if we do this trial and you see death, what's this going to do to the kids? Like, does this become such a big publicity thing that they get asked about it in school? Does it follow them around? Do people show up at our house to pro? I mean, the things you just never think of when you have a conversation about, oh yeah, I'm in favor of that penalty. And so it, it was not an easy decision, even though this guy deserved it then, and I think he deserves it now, but um, it was a big deal. It's the big deal. And I imagine for you, working on accomplishing the objective there, which is to get a jury to see the case the way you see it and to seek a just sentence, which is what you got on him, that too has to be something that weighs on your conscience. Uh, and I don't mean that because it's bad, but because it's such a big thing. It's, I mean, the death penalty is not a small, trite matter. When that Denver jury said death for Frank Rodriguez and Judge Connie Peterson read it out in Denver District Court, it was the most impactful thing ever. Although I got to say there was no suspense once they said they had a verdict. You were waiting for that word. And was it one person that held it up? Yeah, that well, and again, we've spoken with nine of 12 jurors that were the primary deliberators, and three of them just have never come forward. And as you know, you can't go chase these people down. But to a person of the nine we spoke with, every one of them described the exact same situation. And that was one where they went home on the night of Thursday, August the 6th, having voted on a scale of one to 10, 10, 10 out of 10s and two, eight out of 10s. What everybody at the time thought was for death. And then about midday, Friday, the 7th of August, um, they went around to do another vote and a woman stood up and said, Hey, I just got to make something clear. Last night when I voted 10 out of 10, I meant 10 out of 10 for life. And uh, that kind of shocked everybody. This is not a juror that had ever voiced any concerns before at any other phase of the deliberations. And, you know, there was a number of them. And, and so they asked to see the crime scene video, which is uh, horrific and something you can't unsee. And uh, that did not move her to change her vote. And that's how it ended. Now, since then, there was a piece written in the paper by... Oh, Jordan, Stefan, uh, or Stefan Jordan, who had said that another juror that didn't speak with us had said she too had had reservations, but none of the nine jurors we spoke with said anybody else ever voiced anything other than 
yeah, we're going to seek death on this guy, except for the two added out of 10 people who are still thinking on it. So, you know, in my mind, um, it came down to that one woman who had whatever reservation she had. And I, and I want to say this too. There were people afterwards that said, do you think she was a plant? Do you think that she lied to you in jury selection? Do you think, and I'm not going to give scandal to the process, Craig, because had they come back with the, the sentence I wanted, I would have wanted the community to embrace that as the proper will of the jury doing their jobs. And just because I don't get the outcome that I wanted, I'm not going to suggest that there was some corruption involved because the position I took wasn't the winning position. Do I think that a person in that circumstance can go through jury selection in good faith, answer all the questions truthfully. And it's always in the abstract, right? Cause you're, you don't right. know, you don't know what you're going to be confronted with. And then to get to the point many months later to sit there and have gone through guilty and guilty, all this other stuff. And to finally get to a place where you're like, Oh my God, I, I can't do this. And it could be for a number of reasons, but do I think that in good faith, someone could do that? A hundred percent. I do, man. I do. So I'm disappointed I came up short. I know that the, the naysayers out there are like, what a waste. I don't feel that way. The victims don't feel that way. Even the ones that were anti-death penalty were like, they'd pull me aside before the verdict. Uh, and I mean for sentence. And they'd say, look, um, I don't really care if he gets life or death, but I want to thank you for going to trial. Because honestly, and I didn't realize this at the time, I would not have known the things about my son's killer that I know now. I would not have really appreciated uh, what took place in that theater if you hadn't done this. And to that extent, it gives me some peace of mind. And that's something you can't predict either. So I thought, oh, okay, listen, I'm I, again, I think the system worked the way it was supposed to work. Am you know, I disappointed? Here's what they loved. Sure. Here, here's what they loved. Cause I listened to a lot of the trial. I'm that kind of guy because I wanted to see what would happen. I've always lived real close to the Aurora theater and it was, it was personal to me. It was it was horrific. I was on O'Reilly the Monday after it happened. He said, well, Craig, what's happening? Because he knew me from Bonnet and Columbine. And I said, Bill, it's going to come down to two things. And uh, that is his mental condition. He's going to plead insanity. And whether he gets the death penalty. And he, he said, well, what do you think about that? I said, even among the victims, there will be... There are so many victims that the DA is going to hear a lot of different opinions and whatnot. But anyway, George, uh, uh, your position was a lot more important than mine because when I prosecuted Frank Rodriguez, I was a chief deputy. Mike Kane had left the office after uh, prosecuting Chris Rodriguez with my trial partner, Mike Little. And Norm said, I want you to take over. And I said, geez, boss, can I read the file and think about it? Because it does hit you. And uh, I consulted with Rabbi Daniel Goldberger, who was a great guy, and he met me at Zadie's, told me the Jewish position on yeah. such things, and uh, I thought Frank Rodriguez was worthy of death penalty. I'm not a zealot about it, and I don't think you are either, but you were involved in so much of it just by happenstance with Nathan Dunlap, and you stood up to John Hickenlooper, and if you recall, I exposed some CNN uh, tape on the part of him, how he was going to veto it. You and I are sort of united through that, too. Again, with you having all the power. But Nathan Dunlap was a defining moment 
in your career, and and I think you stood up strong. How does that rank in your memories? That was unexpected, um, and that was also remember in 2013, and the and the governor had been toying around with the idea of of whether to commute the sentence to life, or or allow it to proceed forward to death. Now there was a lot, and you know this, but there's a lot of misunderstandings out there about the governor has to sign a death warrant and Hickenlooper. There's no death warrant. The governor didn't have to do a thing. The jury did it for him. All the governor and can do County is to intervene. Who with yeah. prosecutor Jim? It was Peters. actually in El Paso. Oh, it, right. It was in El Paso County jury. Remember, because it got venue moved down got south. changed because the Chuck E. Cheese murder right. was so. Uh, I mean, it was Correct. so horrific when it happened. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was the biggest thing at the time, and, and it occurred at a time. Remember, we were going through the summer of violence, and we had gone through all that stuff. And so this ended up being like 90, what, 93 It was December of 1993, the summer of violence, where I got yeah. a bunch of action in Denver. And there was at the Chuck E. Cheese that I, you know, I used to frequent. We all did. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when this thing came up, um, just weirdly, I had, I was... I'd been dealing with Jack Finlaw on this and he asked my opinion and I appreciate that. I respect that. And I told him absolutely not. You should let the jury's decision stand. The governor is now eight. I think it was like uh, 18 years removed from the sentence. Like let this thing stand. Do not intervene here. And um, he said, look, I'll call you before we make it public. I said, I appreciate that. I was standing in the U S attorney's office, putting on a training for them at the time on using visuals and PowerPoint stuff like that for trial advocacy. And my phone started blowing up and it was Jack. And, uh, he called me and said, I told you I was going to let you know what the governor's going to do. And he's made a decision. And so I'm kind of standing there in front of all these U S attorneys. I'm like, okay. And he said, the, the governor's going to, um, grant a reprieve. <laughs> I said, well, what in the hell is that? <laughs> and he goes, it's in the constitution. You should look it up. Anyway, we're going to make the announcement here in the next hour or whatever. So I do look it up and I didn't know what it was, but it's, I think it's like in section seven or something like that of the, of the executive branch part of the constitution. And it's one of the powers that the governor has, which is to basically cause a uh, call a timeout. And I remember as a buddy of mine from the U.S. attorney's office was speeding me over to the AG's office so that we could kind of get together, powwow, head over to the Capitol for the press conference. I got more and more pissed off because I started thinking to myself, man, here are these victims who have developed this, decades long scab over their psyches, always knowing that someday if they just stuck with it long enough, right? Like they'd get to the end of the due process road, which they did. U.S. Supreme Court came back and said, we're not going to review this decision. You've gotten all the due process you're entitled to in the world. Now go get your sentence. And, and they would finally get closure. And here was a governor that had decided to pull that scab off and send them back out into the cold with this is a really hard decision and I'm not going to make it shrug, shrug, and then send them away. And I thought, how cruel. I mean, even if he had just told them, I'm commuting it to life and here's why. This is what I believe. This is what I know. Hate me if you must, but it's over. That would have been courageous enough that they would have hated it, but it would have been over. Instead, he sends them out with, well, maybe the next governor. You know, And it became a campaign issue in the Beaupre Hickenlooper campaign because he did that. 
They politicized the death penalty in a way that was completely unnecessary, and it really got me pissed off. So when I finally got to the point where, if you remember this press conference, it's inside the the atrium area of the Capitol, right outside the governor's office, and he brought in these people like little, I don't know, mascots or talismans to ward off bad thoughts. They had Stan Garnett, the Democrat VA from uh, Boulder, who, who I'm friends with. They brought out a rabbi. And he brought out like a Catholic priest and lined what them up on rabbi? the side while he delivered. It was rabbi I cannot Foster. remember. Rabbi Foster. I cannot remember. I don't, think, I don't think it was. Yes, go ahead. I don't think it was Rabbi. I don't think it was Rabbi Foster. It's I can't right. remember who it was. And it, but um, but he, he comes and gives this talk and it's just it's hogwash. And I'm so upset that all the media, they're done and they come up to remember John Southers is out of the country. He's in China. And so it's Cynthia Kaufman, the future AG and me, and the media comes up and they're like, Hey, we're going to set up on the West steps of the Capitol. Are you guys going to say something? And I know Cynthia had two previously prepared statements that John had prepared. One was in case he got death and the other was in case he got life. This was completely unexpected. And she looks at me and she goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, Oh, I'm talking. I'm definitely talking. Let's do this. So I walk outside, they put the microphone up. And I vomited up something for four minutes that was just almost stream of consciousness, gut reaction. That's the opposite. And I was taken with the did. response. Let me let me just say that you gave a demonstration of George Brockler at his best. You gave us a tiny taste of it, but it was fresh then, and you knew you were going to have to deal with these victims. You knew it was going to rip the guts out of them. He did not do it the right way. It's kind of like Joe Biden in Afghanistan. You can make oh this decision, gosh, yeah. but do it the right way, man. And you were full of righteous indignation in a beautiful setting right against the Capitol. And that's why you're top three material now, because, you know, there's a lot of phony righteous indignation exists in this world. But you were feeling it and you were saying it and you do it in complete sentences, wonderful paragraphs. You have a gift for that. When did you discover that early on? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I think I've told people, I think in part it was the product of um, relying so much on um, a, a natural talent in class up through grade school and junior high. And by the time I got to high school, I had not developed a true work ethic yet. And so I'm winging it. Right. Like you're sitting in class and you're being asked about something you didn't read or you scanned or someone else. And you're stuck. You know what I mean? And it just gets worse until you get to law school. And then they completely expose you because you can't BS an expert in the law. You know what I mean? Like you just there are just things you can't do. So to some extent, I've told people I had to develop that because I hadn't figured out a good work ethic yet. And I was just winging it. And I tried to. And then it got to the point where. And I try to tell my boys and my daughter this, my daughter's great at this, and that is if you can stand up and you can look someone in the eye and you can talk to them, not a speech, just talk to them about what you're thinking, what you're feeling. You drop the uhs and the ums and you're just treating them with respect. Um, it is going to be a difference maker between you and your peers. And you've seen this too, Craig. There are, there are attorneys that go to court that simply can't do the job of a trial attorney. And it's, I'm, I don't mean to offend them, but you've seen this. There are folks that call themselves trial attorneys that you watch and you think there's gotta be a different part of the law for you. This isn't 
this isn't for you. And then there's others you see, I see them now, some young people that we hire for the office where I'm like, damn, that's, that's good. That's better than I was at that age. That's really impressive. And I asked the same question, where does it come from? And for me, I think it was <laughs> in part trying to figure out a way to get by. <laughs> that's interesting. But I know you prepared hard. Just for example, the Aurora Theater case. So it was massive preparation. You got to put in the hours and that helps with the comfort level, right? Once you know the material better than anybody else, you know the date, you know the place, you know the names, you can tell the story. And I used to get ribbed for writing everything down. I'm a little anal like that, but I wasn't reading it. It was just my preparation. I, I I had thought about what I was going to say before I said it. So that helped. There's no right way to prepare. There's only preparation and a lack of preparation. And you can see it. There's just, it's very difficult to just wing it. And in fact, one of the guys that works in your firm, Harvey, I, I thought that growing up as a young prosecutor, Har Harvey was already established. Too many people in my office underestimated him. Um, because they thought, you know, he'd come in, his tie would be askew or he'd be rushing in to go from one place to the other because he's always busy. And they underestimated him. I watched him in motions hearings and it was obvious to me he was far more prepared than he let on with the other side. And that, that's a smart tactic to make. But you could see him, re, you know, recalling facts and things from the reports as he was cross-examining an officer. And I sat there and thought, this guy has put in the time. He's just acting like he hasn't put in the time. And for the Aurora case, the, the, the thing that, that you're right about is you cannot have a conversation with the jury, either opening or closing, unless you know the case better than probably, in the whole case, better than everybody else. But that cross-examination of those mental health experts, I don't think I've ever put as much time into preparing for something as that. And um, it paid off. I mean, those experts didn't know what they had written and read better than I do. They were smarter than I was on psychiatry, no doubt about it, but they did not know. The, the material as well as I did you and it were paid off fire. and it made it I, I listened to it and the thing though about a trial is I don't care how much you prepare for a trial during the trial you're still going to be pulling all-nighters because things are going to be happening that you did not necessarily anticipate all the time all the time and it, there were some nights where you know Maybe I wasn't up the next day. I didn't have a witness or something like that. And it was easy to sort of decompress for a moment or two. But invariably, your plans change. The day, the first day, we had planned out we were going to have, we were going to front load all these victims from the movie theater into the case. But as you sit there in trial and you start to assess the jury, what I realized after the second victim from the, 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 the movie theater was that it was sounding repetitious. And so they were all hearing the same facts because they were all going, and I could see what the jury was having diminishing impact on them emotionally. And so right then and there, that day, we were like, nope, we're changing it up. So we are now going to go a victim, and then we'll go a crime scene investigator, and then we'll go a chain of custody witness, and then maybe we'll bounce around and hit another detective on another piece, and then maybe we'll tackle the explosive. But we were able to do that because the opening kind of was all comprehensive. But as you've said, is that it's just so fluid. It's, it's almost like the, um, you know, every plan for war goes out the window right. after the first shot. That's very true of trial work, too. You just don't know what's coming. I know what's happening right now. We already mentioned 1993 and the summer of violence, but uh, crime is up. You've written about it. What's going on in Metro Denver, George? 
I think it's a combination of things. Um, one, um, I think that those people in charge of the legislature, that party has moved steadily to the left or the leadership of the party has succumbed to the, to the extreme left. And that appears in more and more legislation that's designed to be far more forgiving of criminals, including repeat and violent criminals, uh, than it is, um, I think, uh, cognizant of what, what victims go through. And so you see that, and it really picked up pace with the pandemic with some of the governor's orders and directions to jailers and the Department of Corrections. And what we've seen as a result is a spike in crime, not just from that, that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is um, in the post George Floyd era, and maybe we're still in the George Floyd era, I don't know, but um, law enforcement has taken such a drubbing that we see a ton of retirements, people just leaving the profession and the jobs become harder to fill which means you have to consider lowering the bar for quality to get people in the front door. And meanwhile, there's a lack of respect or diminished respect for the men and women in uniform. All of these things begin to have a synergistic effect, a momentum to them. And it turns into what we've seen now. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is you can't call motor vehicle theft a low level offense and stop jailing people for it and expect motor vehicle theft to stay stagnant or decline. Instead, we've seen an explosion of motor vehicle thefts across the metro area, and in fact, the entire state of Colorado, and it is directly attributable to how we treat those offenders and that crime. You spread that out across all crimes, and all of a sudden you start to see things like, my God, we have this explosion of murders, of murders in Denver and Aurora. I mean, I can't recall the last time we saw numbers like this. You might, you might have seen bigger numbers. I don't remember it. But it's going on everywhere. And it's if you look at polling, it is the number one issue in places like Aurora, Jefferson County. Um, it is going to be a topic and perhaps a difference maker in the upcoming election. You sound like a candidate to me, but I was shook by George Floyd. You know, <laughs> I worked with uh, the police. If you're in law enforcement, of course, you're going to work with them. And I had a lot of friends. But George Floyd, there were three other guys in uniform besides Derek Chauvin who just stood around and let it happen, submitted some false reports. That was very discouraging, wasn't it, George? Yeah, it, it was. And I mean, even if you look at Elijah McClain, and I've been very critical of Phil's use of the grand jury where I don't think it was necessary or even truly used for its benefit. Uh, the indictment, I thought, was pretty weak and, and weird. But having said that, I am convinced that but for the intervention of Aurora PD and the paramedics that night, Elijah McClain is alive right now and playing the violin to puppies and stuff. And so those contacts, whether they turn into criminal liability or just civil liability, uh, it's undeniable that we need to change the way we do policing in some places. And we need to figure out a better way to restore trust and confidence in the men and women who protect us from the bad element. Um, but, you know, the pendulum swings so severely one way or the other, uh, we always end up overcorrecting. And I think that's where we're at now. We're overcorrecting. Here's another thing that worries me, and I wrote about it in a Colorado Sun column. I I've seen the police politicized, and I think that's unfortunate. And I thought Trump was guilty on the Ukraine uh, matter and definitely for January 6th and whatnot. And it just seemed to me that he had cultivated support among the police such that a lot of guys I respected 
they weren't looking at it objectively. You know what I mean? If you look at a burglary, you say, well, we either have the evidence or we don't. You don't look at whether the guy's a Democrat or a Republican. I I just worry, and let's talk about January 6th. That shook me, shook me bad. What about you? Oh, man. Craig, I uh, and I wrote a column on this too. Uh, I don't have any problems at all labeling them insurrectionists and what they did because that's exactly what it was. I don't know how so many people got leave from their senses to make the decision to storm a place um, that represents our democracy out of Washington, D.C. And, and, and it bothers me how many apologists there are for it. Now, listen, I do think that the media did not do a good job of saying, look, there's 8 trillion people who showed up for a rally that didn't do anything wrong, that didn't participate. This was a, a small group of people. But that small group of people, they were wrong. They were 100% wrong in what they did. And our inability to condemn it, in fact, our willingness for, for some to even try to apologize for it, I find that very, very difficult. And and maybe that's the prosecutor in me. And as you describe it is there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. There are things that are lawful and there are things that are unlawful. And when we start to try to gray those areas out, we do it to our overall detriment. I just I I cannot be an apologist for what took place on the 6th in the Capitol because I think it was flat wrong. And in the column I wrote, I said these people need to be vigorously prosecuted And those prosecutions need to be super public so that people understand we will not tolerate this, just won't tolerate it. Don't care what your political background is or who your presidential candidate is. It is wrong. You'll be you'll be held accountable when you do it. I was only a prosecutor for 16 years at the Denver DA's office. But I remember many times when people say, Oh, you're persecuting the person. And I bet you heard that even in the Aurora Theater Massacre. The Aurora Theater Massacre. Oh, you're a persecutor. You're not a prosecutor. You're a persecutor. How many times have you heard that, George? Oh, that's, buddy, that's one of the nicer things that I've heard. I mean, as you know, you know, when you seek death, the public defenders consider you an attempted murderer because they look at you as someone who is deliberately trying to kill another human being, whether that person deserves it or not, is not part of their analysis. Um, so persecution. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, I, again, we're talking about this January 6th thing and I'm not trying to say they're perfect, perfect equivalents, but you know, when I look at the weeks of trashing of our state capital, largely with impunity, it is also frustrating because I want to say, listen, it doesn't matter the political persuasion of these people. It doesn't matter how, how, aggrieved they think they are if we don't stand up and say we're not going to allow criminal conduct of this kind in our state capital or our nation's capital how do we we then have credibility to do it to the other group um but That's you're something. right there are people right. hey, hey I, you know I yeah worked, i'm just gonna say there go ahead go ahead sorry no, no I, go ahead I, I was just gonna say i worked next to the capitol our windows got boarded up we're at springer and steinberg for a while and I think those people need to go to jail. I'd say for up to a year for that kind of vandalism, that sort of damage, maybe more. But then for people who attack police officers, by the way, George Brockler is a colonel in the military, and I give him the respect of that. And he knows what it's like to wear a uniform. He knows what it's like to be in law enforcement. And these people who used American flags and hockey sticks to beat their way in, 
I'd say about five oh, years would be the right penalty for that. What about you? I don't know about the length of time, but they must be incarcerated and it must be publicized. Um, and my hope is, is that they regret their decisions and they have tearful sentencings where they talk about what they've learned and, and how they're going to change their lives. But they, they got to go to jail. I mean, I just there has to be some kind of incarceration or none of this makes any sense. Um, and, and I want to see that. And again, you talk about the names, even in my own party. I mean, you take a certain approach to political people or things like this. And there are those that turn on you and want to ask, like, where's your patriotism? Don't you understand that what they were doing was for the right cause or, or like that matters or something? And then, you know, they try to analogize things to historical events, whether it was 1776. And you've heard this, too. People likening conduct of certain people to the Nazis and stuff. And it's like, man, when you start doing things like that, you don't encourage debate or any kind of conversation that can get us anywhere meaningful. That is shut down conversation whether it's the names or the analogies or the, and it's frustrating because we're seeing more and more of that every day in Colorado and America. And that polarization is just poison to the it's process, terrible. just poison. You said something, George, you said, I don't know how those people got to that point. I do. And to me, it was Donald Trump and it's plain as can be. And I normally agree on Nazi references as a Jewish person. Wow. Don't compare things to, that fascist, deadly regime. But I do use the capital B, big, capital L, lie for what's going on that keeps this violent threat going in America. And it's a big threat to democracy. And I want guys like you to call it out the way Liz Cheney has. I admire her. I think I'm going to go up and try to help her because... She's standing up to a big threat to democracy. Do you see it? So many topics, but I mean, let's talk about the ones that become part of the political conversation for this next election cycle. And that is, do I think that the 2020 election was stolen? And I don't. I don't. And I've said this repeatedly on, on my own radio show. And that is, look, is there a fraud that takes place in probably every election? Yeah, to some level, I think there is. And we should try to root it out and prevent it, no doubt. But do I think there was the kind of fraud that was game changing or outcome changing in this? I do not. I'm open minded enough to say you bring me evidence. And I mean evidence, not this conspiracy theory, conjecture stuff driven by Guess who so-and-so knows or guess who so-and-so is related to or works for. Don't give me that. Bring me real evidence and I'll be open-minded to it. But in the absence of that, I'm just not going to call into question an entire system and outcome of it because the guy I voted for didn't win. Uh, I think that is troubling. And it's going to haunt the Republican Party through this cycle. You've seen it with Heidi Ganahl, who I have a, such a great deal of respect for running for governor. You see that nine news interview that Marshall did with her. And I like Marshall too. Marshall's questions were, and this is a little ridiculous. Why did you delete some of your Twitter feed? And two, do you think the election was stolen? Every candidate for statewide office, maybe national office is going to be asked that by the media. That's what that issue has done for the Republican party is to be an utter distraction from the real issues of leadership and public safety and education. And now it's distilled back to looking in the rearview mirror and trying to justify something that there just isn't evidence for. Right. But here's the thing. To me, that is the real issue because Donald Trump is perpetuating it. He says that the prosecution of the January 6th insurgents is a persecution. And he supports 
you know, the people who are rallying on behalf of them. Ashley Babbitt and Q, which is an anti-Semitic cult, is encouraged by Donald Trump, who praises Ashley Babbitt. And I agree with you, it's poisonous. One of the biggest encounters I remember with you, and there are so many, is you sitting in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge in person at 710 KNUS on the Saturday before the election for Attorney General. And you had waged the good fight, but you were being dragged down like an anchor by Donald Trump, who is not popular in Colorado. And last week when I had Mario Nicholas on, we spent 10 minutes talking about what you could do. Of course, we're not you. But ultimately, I think that Liz Cheney's position needs to prevail or the GOP is toast and maybe America is toast too. And you're so smart and you can put it together. You can see the corruption. You can see the bad actions. And there will be somebody after this cycle emerges of crazy Trumpism. And who's going to be the leaders then? I don't know. But you've got a lot of leadership abilities. And you brought up 1776 and kind of those ridiculous uh, patriotism claims by those insurgents. Lauren Boebert, the other part of the top three, as I label it, she tweeted out in 1776 on that morning. You're a prosecutor. What did she mean by that? I don't I don't think that she was trying to stir the pot in the way that it ultimately boiled over. I do think that I mean, it's interesting. I, I've gotten to know Lauren a little bit. I've seen her speak at a bunch of things, and I think she's coming into her own. But she really just says what she thinks, and I really do think it comes from a place of um, patriotism. And I think what she was trying to do was to egg on what I believe or inspire what I think she thought was going to be a tremendous rally and this great argument. I don't think in her wildest dreams, I don't think, she thought the capital would be overrun. And if, that, if I'm wrong on that, man, I'll be, I'll be disappointed. But, right, um, but we're, we're kind of she... just speculating. I mean, I knew Ryan Call, and uh, he just got disbarred for apparently oh, stealing. I, I, I couldn't believe that. In Buddy, fact, isn't that crazy? At the Boulder oh. debate where I was taking those great pictures of you and interacting with you and your lovely bride, Marcia, I walked yeah. out with Ryan Call, who I've known through the years. But let's get back to talking about yeah, sure. you'd be surprised. I don't know Lauren Boebert, but can we both support an investigation, kind of what happened to Ryan Call? Let's get to the bottom of it. And can you at least say that you, you'd like Adam Kinzinger and, and Liz Cheney and, and their right to try to get to the bottom of this because there's a big deal in America. Can you give me an amen on that? I, this is what I would need to know. I would need to know that there's something that can come out of the most partisan political body on the planet Earth, uh, their investigation that hasn't already been revealed through a number of other investigations, rather than turn this into a political dog and pony show, which is what I fear it would become. E e despite the best interests of Kinzinger and Cheney, um, I think that's what it is geared to be. There, there can't be limitations on what can be looked into. I worry about that, that this is really just a focus on Trump's role and some handpicked people in, in Congress. I worry about that. And so th this body, uh, when they say they want to investigate, it feels like it's an attempt to create a political distraction during 
an election cycle. And, and that troubles me. Uh, does it have the potential to get to some new truth? I guess. I don't know. But you'd have to prove that to me. I just, I mean, honestly, Craig, I'm so skeptical of Nancy Pelosi uh, and her motives for doing anything. And I think that people on the other side would say the exact same thing about Andrew McCarthy. So I'm not just Pelosi. I just think it makes the entire process suspect. So yeah, I'd love to get to a, I'd, I'd love to get to a truth here and know everything that happened, who knew what, when, and their level of participation. Is this the vehicle for it? I don't yes. know, man. I'll answer know. that. Yes, I, I'll tell you what concerns me are the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, QAnon, all with an anti-Semitic tinge and a racist part. What do you do with that part of the GOP? Do you want anything to do with them? No. I don't want, a part, I don't want any part with any person who bears animus towards someone because of their faith or their ethnicity or the color of their skin. But if there's groups out there for which that's part of their... Uh, part of their platform. I got no interest in having their support. George, you've been so generous with your time, and I think I got a lot of things figured out, but some I'm just wondering, because the first time I ever heard about Joe Altman is when I listened to your show, which is on Saturday morning, 6 to 9, The George Show, and suddenly there was a new sponsor, which always perks up everybody's ears, because we're in the business to make money Thank you, Michael yeah, yeah. Bailey. Right, but but Joe Altman from Penn Network was suddenly doing lives with you, and I I never understood what Penn Network was or what they were doing. Next thing I know, Joe Altman is saying he intercepted an Antifa call, and he goes on with Randy Corcoran and Michelle Malkin, and he says, "Hey, the the election was fixed by Eric Coomer at Dominion," and then the Trumps pick up on it, start tweeting it, and Pretty soon we have January 6th, and we have what's going on now. Who is Joe Altman? Joe is uh, a friend, someone who I've gotten to know since I ran for office. He reached out to me, I don't know however many years ago, to have a conversation and say, hey, look, I, I really like what you talk about. I like the way that you handle yourself and you run your office. And I'd love to get together and talk about um, you know, the future and all that. And so he's been you know, he's just been really good to me. Uh, I've toured his places before, even before he was ever a sponsor. And uh, I like Joe. He's an entrepreneur. Um, and he's done a lot of things that um, I think are positive. We disagree on the election stuff. And he knows that. Uh, we just disagree on it. And so the direction he's taken on this and the, the things that he's done, he, that's him. That's, uh, that's on him. And um, I, support his, uh, I support his right to pursue his passions uh, as long as they don't run afoul of the law, you know? So um, I, I'm not running away from Joe. I, I still am friendly with Joe and his business is all data, proprietary data stuff, which has been largely effective. And, and they have a lot of business clients. I think they have some political clients. And uh, so when he started advertising on the show, um, I was happy. I was like, Hey, great, man. I, I love to have someone who started with nothing and built to something big show up on the show and that and all the people that advertise on my show and craig i know it's similar for you nobody goes out and brings me an advertiser my god i wish they would i wish they'd come to me and say hey have you ever everybody on my show is someone i know and i've used their product so like phil harding phil represented me in a personal injury case and i worked with phil starting 10 years ago rtp roofing they replaced our roof 
And then it was only after that that I reached out to them about the possibility of advertising. Joe, I knew from a whole bunch of things. I reached out and said, hey, man, do you think it would be beneficial to your business to be on? He said, let's give it a run. So, you know, I know that Joe Altman is the entrepreneur, as the giant taxpayer, and as the person who's created a bunch of jobs and opportunities. Uh, the part of Joe that pursues the stolen election thing, that's just the place where we just part company. Do you follow a guy named Seth Abramson? He's a lawyer. He has a blog. He wrote books, uh, Proof of a Conspiracy, etc. Now he's on Substack. But he says Joe was involved in a lot of stuff, including being there at the Willard Hotel on January 5 and on the planning. Wow. You, have you familiarized yourself with any of that? No. No, this is the first time I've ever heard of that guy or that book. Um, and here's something else. Everybody on both sides of this issue, even with the radio show and stuff, they will email you links to YouTube things or articles or, Hey, here's a book you should download or a book you should read. I've done none of it. I've done none of it. Um, and, and in part, it's a function of just how busy I am, but it's another thing about, look, I just can't, I'm not going to run down a rabbit hole to pursue these tangential um, conspiratorial arguments about how the election was stolen. I just don't believe it. Here's another example. These people that talk about um, the opt-out, one of their best arguments, or at least the ones they put forward the most um, enthusiastically was, we got to get Jenna Griswold out of the election business. And that way, and I thought, whoa, 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 hang on. She's not in the election business, right? The clerks and recorders are in the election business. She's the secretary of state. She may monitor and issue rules, but she doesn't count votes. That's the clerks and recorder. So some of this stuff that they ask you to consider, or like two guys that take a, a voting machine and go into a hotel room and spend a couple hours dismantling it and plugging things in and saying, hey, look, we were able to change the... I don't have time for that, Craig. I just don't have time for it. I, I, I don't I have a lot of free time either, but the New York Times broke the story that the White House had already concluded that Dominion didn't do anything wrong. And they knew it, yet they sent out Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis etc., to uh, put forth that ridiculous theory. Sidney Powell, too. In any event, yeah, what you, did they base that on? Say, they you, got you, the pleading from Coomer v. Dominion, and it talks about Joe Altman. You know, he he just yeah. failed to appear at his first deposition. And then at the I second not, one, it, there's about a 50-page brief that the New York Times hyperlinks. It's out of Denver District Court. I got to love that. I mean... I think the big lie was born in Colorado, and I think it was born by your guy, Joe Altman, who made up an Antifa call, and then he got Randy Corporate. You know, the same day he announced it uh, on his conservative daily podcast, he was a guest at Randy Corporate's tea party that night, and Corporate said he brought exhibits about the hate mail that uh, Joe Altman, or he was known as Joe Otto back then, and I'm thinking, wow, that's that's something to line him up as a guest the day, same day he announces. And then on November 14th, Saturday morning slot, I used to occupy, he has on Joe Altman for hours just talking about this Antifa call. And I know George Brockler, great prosecutor, trial attorney, you are. You'd say, wait, let's back up a little. How do you intercept an Antifa call? Because <laughs> I just don't know how you do that stuff. And Maybe he's your friend and it just goes without saying. But for me, 
he, he brought that up, and like I say, it got magnified by Newsmax and Michelle Malkin out of Colorado Springs. And I just think you should dissociate yourself from this. And he's he's part of that FEC United, and I know you're in a tough spot, I, and I appreciate you being here. But uh, I, I think the right side is the Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney side, can we agree that this attack on elections is dangerous for democracy? I, I do think it's dangerous for our democracy. Uh, the, the, if there's an upside to this, it's that I want us to be hyper vigilant about the security of our voting systems. I think that attention is completely warranted. And anybody that pushes back and says, no, this is good enough, I think they're wrong too. But to take it to that next level, and call into question the validity of the outcome. And I've even had people, you know, Craig, tell me, like, I really think you won the 2018 election, but voter fraud kept you. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> listen, man. I mean, nobody wants to believe that more than the guy who lost. But I don't believe that. I believe I lost a fair election to a guy that fought hard for it. Um, there's a million reasons why that might happen, but I'm simply not going to give scandal to the process because of what you said. I'm, it's not good for the democracy. I think I ran once, and I got some people saying that, and I said, I'm keeping track. And, you know, you always wonder how the votes are counted, but you are the perfect guy to talk to because you've run in races where you lost and they were close. Other times you emerged victorious, and that's the way it goes. It's sort of like a jury trial. You could say on the Aurora Theater, oh, it was rigged. They snuck in somebody, you know, but— you don't do that. You proved that today. And to me, it's Donald Trump. He's the baby. I read Commander in Cheat by Rick Riley, a Colorado author, and he would just bully the club oh, yeah. pros into saying, okay, you're the club champion. Okay, uh, you shot a 67 on a different day that nobody witnessed. And they would just give in to him. And now I see the Republican Party like that. And I want some strong leaders who say, no, you're not the club champion, Donald. You're just not. I think that um, his ongoing presence in the party is real. I think he's going to continue to play an oversized role in our party at the national, maybe even the local level for a couple more election cycles. Um, I just don't know if that's positive. I mean, he brought a whole lot of people to the party that, that hadn't voted Republican. That, that That's undeniable. But at what expense? Um, you know, I, and I've told this story before, Craig, I maybe even told you, but, you know, we've lost in some ways a generation of would-be Republicans. And I'm going to count my daughter amongst that group because I remember during the 2016 campaign, standing in the kitchen in our house, doing dishes after dinner, and my daughter was standing next to me. And that story was getting all the publicity about Billy Bush on the bus. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. When he says, hey, you, this, you just grab a... And I'm standing there, and, and Amanda was, well, it was about four years ago, so she was 14 or so, and uh, I, I, well, a little more than four years ago. And I remember her watching it with me, and I could just feel her brain spinning. And I looked over at her, and she's like, Dad, is that okay? And I said, no, no, and not only is it not okay, if, you, if your brother said that, I would discipline them right then and there, whether we were in public or private. And then she asked the killer question, which is, are you going to vote for him? And it's like, oh, damn, you know, like the answer was, I'm going to vote for him because I think the alternative is worse. 
And while you and I might be able to debate the nuances of whether Hillary Clinton's policies would be worse for America or the world or whatever, you cannot have a conversation with a 14-year-old girl who's coming into her own when she hears someone talk about her gender that way and try to explain why it's still okay to support this guy as the most powerful person in the world. And right then and there, I could feel it. I'm like, yeah, she ain't never going to put on the Republican jersey. And that's been true to this day. She ain't going to be a Democrat either, though. I mean, she thinks that AOC and Bernie Sanders are crazy. But that moment right there, that's when we lost her. And she grew up in a Republican house. And it was because of that moment. And that will stick with me forever. Not because she won't be a Republican, but because that awkward moment between a father and a daughter where I got stuck in this position, having to explain something I should have never, ever been asked to explain to my daughter. And that is, how can someone who says such horrible, ugly things about women still be worthy of being president of the United States? But there was, and it's in my head, it will be there till I go to my grave. Gosh, what a great story. And your daughter, Amanda, is amazing. George has regular feature. Get to know your teenager, and Amanda just upstages you time and again. She's smarter than you, and you're smart. (laughs) I I think she gets so much from her mom. Right, but she's also perceptive because that Billy Bush thing told us a lot, and I am personally ashamed that I voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton because I just discarded those things, like when he called the judge a Mexican when he ruled against him in the Trump University case. We would never do that. It was out of bounds, and yet we looked the other way. And, you know, his first year in office was okay. He destroyed the Islamic State, and the Iran nuke deal was already done. We'd given him the money back, but I was with him that that was a stupid deal. And before we leave, I I just wanted to say that uh, the same people who made that stupid deal are the people who bungled Afghanistan. So I'm like your daughter Amanda where I'm stuck between parties, and I have been for a long time. And when I lost, it was as an unaffiliated candidate. But back to your beautiful daughter, Amanda, who's a freshman in college, like my son, Samuel. I'll never forget your sense of humor when you said, hey, a sheriff in Jeffco tapped you on the shoulder after you had your firstborn and said, man, you're a prosecutor through and through. And you said, why? And he said, because you named your daughter a man D.A. And I thought, God, that's clever. Did he really say that or did you make that up? He, I swear to you, he said it. It was, it was one of those moments, too, where I'm like, oh, my God, no, I didn't think of that, but I wish I had. You know, like it's that good. But that had nothing to do with it. We were sitting on a beach when Marsha was pregnant, going through names, a book of names. And, and that one said that it was a Latin French derivative that was um, she who must be loved or deserving of love. And right then and there, we were like, boom, that's it. And then I go into the courthouse, you know, after the birth, and this dude just blows me away with, <laughs> you can cut it up into Amanda. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I tell Amanda that she sort of hates it. Like, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah, look at it. So <laughs> she's like, oh, well. <laughs> But that's well, a great memory. It was about right there and then. It was You are very compelling as a radio host, Gleb. You can pick topics, get people going, even without talking about Donald Trump. And I remember you used to dodge it because you're in the military. He was commander in chief. Can you give yep. that dodge anymore? Um, no, I mean, it's obviously precarious with certain folks in the party who want to cling to 
the cult of personalities aspect that, that Trump presents. But, you know, I think if we just lose sight of the fact that, that the party is bigger than any one individual, it's got to be more about the principles and values. I think we're a little bit doomed, uh, maybe a lot of bit doomed, but no, it's different now. I mean, I, I, you know, there are times where it's awkward to talk about uh, even president Biden on certain things or, the governor on certain things like I, I you will never, ever, never catch me criticizing Governor Polis on how he uses the National Guard. Not a, not once, whether I'm in uniform or not, whether I'm drilling or not, because it's just too awkward for me. He is my commander in chief. And uh, while I may take shots at him for the policies I disagree with when it comes to covid or the economy or criminal justice, I just won't ever cross that line. And it was similar with with. Uh, Trump, it's just, it's, it's awkward for me. And it's a little awkward with Biden. The, the Afghanistan thing may have been a little departure from that, but it's just awkward to, to criticize someone in the chain of command. All right, then let's criticize his supporters because I broadcast for quite a while and there were political fights here, there, everywhere. But I bet when you deviate, you hear it from Trump enforcers. And I got a lot of that when I was still on the radio. And that's okay because I was converting some people too to see what I thought was the uh, corruption in the Ukrainian, the first impeachment. I couldn't believe that other prosecutors couldn't see it. And then January 6th, I thought, man, you got to be impeached for that. I think Merrick Garland is kind of a wuss. He's got to get to the bottom of it and time's wasting. It's like Alex Hunter is in charge. So that's where I'm coming from. But the Trump enforcers, isn't that different, George? I mean, the bullying, the social media insults, it's taken on a new tinge and it's not healthy for our democracy and it manifested on January 6th. Oh, well, one of the worst developments, um, I think, to befall American society is the ability to comment on social media social media with anonymity and impunity when you don't have to stand behind the words that you say and be accountable for them it makes people who are otherwise inclined to think horrible thoughts huge megaphones for those horrible incendiary poisonous thoughts and the fact that you can do it with impunity maybe you can be blocked maybe you can report twitter that does nothing, not a, in my opinion, not a single thing to advance our democracy, our pursuit of liberty, or just nothing. It is one of the worst things to befall this country in the last 20 years. Gosh, you've given me a lot of great answers, but there's a big issue on the table, and I've written about it before. I'm probably going to write about it this week. It seems to me that the anti-abortion people, my former partner Dan Kaplis, Bob Enyart, uh, et cetera, they, they're like the dog that caught the car. Now what are they going to do? Because I think Roe v. Wade's going to go bye-bye, and I think in every governor's race, every state senate race, every state house race, abortion becomes the issue. Am I wrong? No. No, I think you're right, and I think, and I had said this to someone else right after the, the Texas case caught fire again, and that was, and leave it to the Republicans as Biden is, you know, at least for this point of his presidency, circling the drain over COVID, the economy, Afghanistan. Leave it to the Republicans to distract America from all that by saying, hey, look at this over here. We're about to blow up this case that incites both sides and makes them like, oh, come on. So do I think Roe versus Wade could go away? I don't know. 
Craig. I, I really don't know. I don't know what this this Supreme Court will do. I but do. They're going to they're going to rule in it, favor of Mississippi. Maybe, but but if they do, what that will do is to create a. And for pundits, it's great. For for guys that talk about stuff, you, you and I, it's great. It will create an incredibly intense firestorm of debate and legislation. And at the end of the day, do I think Colorado is going to go pro-life? Not a chance. Not a chance. Will we still have uh, abortion available? Absolutely we will. But it ain't going to look like it's abortion on demand. It ain't going to be that. I don't believe that at all. I believe we're going to have a debate that is going to bring people out that would otherwise just mind their own business. It's going to be loud. It's going to be problematic for some. It's going to be emotional and intense. But at the end of the day, we're going to come up with legislation or something. Maybe, hell, maybe we amend our state constitution. I don't know. But we're going to come up with something that is going to represent um, the will of the majority of Coloradans. And I think at the end of the day, that has more long-term stability to it than constantly wondering, hmm, if we put this person on the Supreme Court, will they overturn Roe versus Wade? I, I just but, think uh, but, getting rid of that issue ultimately. Yeah, but the statute is going to be malleable. And uh, I, I think it's a loser, as you just articulated in Colorado, maybe not in Western Colorado, but most of Colorado. Uh, I, I don't see how Republicans can win. What, what will you say if you're running for governor and they say, what, do you support the Texas abortion law? What do you say? I don't. I mean, I'm pro-life, but I'm not looking to upend um, the Constitution on this issue. I just I don't think that advances the ball for us. Um, if if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, then it's different. I think every single politician that has the ability to influence that policy has to give an answer. I'm going to have to give an answer. But until that time, I'm telling you, I'd never run for office with the. And I got that question running for DA, Craig. Maybe you did too back in the day, but where people are like, are you pro choice or pro? I'm like, as the DA, that has nothing to do with the job. Oh, I, I will never have that I issue brought it up in, in Denver, George, because I was to the right of Bill Ritter on a lot of issues, but he was pro life and I was pro choice. And yeah. I brought it up. In fact, I got the backing of NARAL, and people said, What's that got to do with anything? But at the time, Diana DeGette had just introduced the bubble law to protect uh, the women seeking abortions from being too crowded when. The protesters got around, and somebody needed to enforce that. Now, maybe it was the city attorney, maybe it was the DA, but I also said that you're going to put Bill Ritter in a position of power as a pro-life Democrat, and he's going to go on to great things, and do you want that? And uh, sure enough, he did. He kind of moderated his view, but (laughs) you asked the question. I did bring it up in 1996. It's one of those things that if Roe versus Wade goes away, it'll be it'll be the number one issue I imagine that politicians are asked about all over the country if they're running for office. Um, I, I'd say this: Look, I'm I'm pro life. I've always been pro life, but from a policy standpoint, um, when you talk about things like um, rape and incest and health of the mother. I don't feel comfortable substituting my judgment and my principles in that situation. And it's not because I blame the baby and that's what others would say. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that in other discretionary ones. I, I do feel like the law may have something to say there. And here's what I say about if you're really serious about stopping abortion, Bob Enyart, 
May you rest wherever you are. He took the attitude that the women getting the abortion should be punished. I think he might have advocated execution. I'm not sure. I hope I'm not overstating it. But I know he wanted to punish the women, but the Texas law, it doesn't punish the women at all. And I'm thinking, why? If it's a murder and she's organizing the murder, why are we infantilizing women and saying, oh, well... Sorry, young lady, you, you're you blameless in all this. I mean, doesn't that strike you as weird as a prosecutor? No, no, because obviously what they're trying to do is to craft a law that can navigate not only the politics, and Texas is not the same state it was 10 or 15 years ago, but to not only navigate the politics, but to navigate the the constitution and the law. That's why they've created a system where the government doesn't enforce this. Private citizens enforce it through lawsuits, which by the way, I think is ridiculous. I think I think once you pull the the cork out of that bottle, that genie comes out, where does it end? I don't think the right has given this enough thought because all of a sudden you're gonna talk about doing things with gun owners. Um, things that go, I, I, I just think it's a huge mistake. And I don't think it's consistent with what we've done with any other aspect of law enforcement. I just, that doesn't make sense to me. No, it's crazy. And uh, I really appreciate it. I took a lot out of this interview. One, you're courageous. There were no rules to the interview. And you've been nope. very open and honest. You're a unique personality. You've had so many interesting jobs in your life. What do you think was the most enjoyable? What, what do you like doing the best? The, the hardest, most stressful, most taxing um, job I've ever had was district attorney, just because, you know, the, the weight of the decisions and the things that you have to do. But at the same time, it was also the most rewarding. I mean, you really felt like you could make a difference and do things. And you got to meet a lot of people on their worst day, some on their best day. You got to see the the most evil that people could be to each other, but you also got exposed to real heroes like the, those kids and the teacher in 107. And I mean, as you know, from criminal justice, it's the, when you do other areas of law, you can make a lot more money, but the conversations you have with your neighbors are just different. Like you go to a cocktail party, if those still exist, and you're talking to someone who's doing business transactions, it's a yawn fest. Right. But when you and I talk about things like good and evil, right and wrong, heroes and villains, man, people can relate to that because that is life, right? That is that is just the, the human experience. So that job was. Um, I, I would say, too, that um, as, as much as I know Marshall would hate this, being deployed, um, even though there were times of, of significant concern and stuff like that, and I, although I felt pretty safe compared to some of my other brothers and sisters in arms. Remind everybody where um, you got deployed and when. I got, oh uh, man, it's been, geez, over 10 years. In fact, 10 years ago right now, I was in Tikrit, Iraq, at a place called Cobb Spikers, the chief of military justice for northern Iraq. And um, that, too, was satisfying in a different way. Like, I have felt guilty, and I still feel guilty, about not having done more for my country. Even though I put myself in a position to be asked to do more, I just haven't. And for a long time, I thought, man, am I going to be asked to go to Afghanistan? And secretly, I kind of hoped I would be. That that part of me that can divest itself from you know, being a dad and a husband and thinking, man, could I go do that? I just want to feel like at the end of the day, when they tell me I can't wear the uniform anymore, and, and Craig, that day's coming up, man. It's 2025, May of 2025. 
that can I look back with satisfaction and pride that I paid my debt to this country that's done so much for my family. And I don't know that I'm there yet, but when I was in Iraq, I felt like I was paying that debt. I felt like I'm there so someone else gets to be at home with their family. I'm there. I can do some good. So, you know, deployed and probably being day were the two most satisfying things I've done professionally. Being a father and, and a husband on a personal level, that, that as you know, that, that's just a different level of satisfaction. You are something. You might be number one out of that top three. I'll have to get Lauren Bobert on. Yeah, right. Maybe she'll come on. But you used the word hero, and I was on the air when it happened, this damn shooting, and I said, Kendrick Castillo is a Colorado hero. And I had the honor of meeting his parents. Rhonda Fields was trying to save the death penalty, and they were there, and I was there with them. Rhonda asked me to show up, and, you know, the death penalty sometimes makes strange bedfellows, but... I saw an image uh, during the sentencing that showed me a lot about George Brockler because I know you didn't uh, know you were on TV. It was a camera from up above, and you saw Mr. Castillo in line, and you guys, you guys hugged in a way that just encompassed the trust and the bond that goes with certain families in murder cases. I said in this interview just talking about that special bond You've had it with so many victims, but Kendrick Castillo really stands out, doesn't he? You and I have teenagers, and oh my god, talk about that, George. I, um, you know, I've I've had the fortune slash misfortune of being a prosecutor for a bunch of different mass shootings, whether it was STEM, Columbine, Aurora Theater, Zach Parrish, and the mass shooting of those sheriff's deputies, and all that stuff. And, and there's always tales of heroism that come out of those. Uh, and I'm thinking of specifically Columbine. And invariably, they're always a little more muted when you get to the end of the investigation. And the facts are always a little bit different than initially reported because of the sensationalism and stuff. But it's totally the opposite with, with Room 107 and Kendrick Castillo. You just simply cannot overstate the impact of his courage and his heroism in a moment when you couldn't predict anyone would do it. I mean, the guy stepped up to a gunman who had a loaded 45 caliber Glock 21 pointed at kids with the words, nobody effing move floating over his lips. And this kid from out of nowhere, this totally affable, fun, only child of John and Maria Castillo, who was in love with robotics and, and a friend to everyone just out of the blue, bolted from his chair. There's no time to think. He just acted. And and him doing that, not only he sacrificed his life, but he stopped really the opportunity for a, a mass killing. And it was just a mass shooting. And I remember it was the next day, that first day you bring one of these guys to court. And that was the first day I'd meet John and Maria. And they were at every single court appearance all the time. Never missed a single thing. And I remember they were in the victim witness room down in Douglas and the couches are spread out too far. So I went and I sat on top of the magazines on the coffee table in front of John and Maria and our knees were almost touching. And you know, you've been there, Craig, you're looking into the face of people who that blue light that tells you they're alive in their eyes is not there. It's like burned out. It's gone. And for these people, whatever that thing was that got them up in the morning and, and allowed them to take a deep breath, it was gone. 
and you could just sense it. And, and I had done it enough times though, that part of me was like, God, you've been here so many times. You got to get them this information. And so we have this conversation that you have about the process and all this stuff. And then John begins to say things like, I, and I tell him what a hero his son was. And he says, you know what? I, uh, I regret raising a son who would do such a thing. I regret raising a boy that would put his life in danger when he didn't have to. And if he hadn't, he'd be with us today. And there's no, you can't say anything to, to a person who's in that position. I mean, they, they are in a pit of darkness. You cannot imagine. There's not a single word that you can say, but what I thought as he was saying those words was, my God, man, every other parent of a kid in 107 prays and thanks God every day that you raised your boy to be that boy. Because without that boy, they're sitting across from me and victim witness, our knees almost touching, having the same conversation. And it's, it's incredible. And, and I think he, his immediate action, Kendrick's, inspired Brendan Biley and Josh Jones and ultimately Gregory Jackson and, and uh, Miss Harper. I mean, these are all people who out of 26 people, they could have run and hid. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not convinced I would have done anything different, but they didn't. When this happened and life was on the line, they stood up and said, I'm doing something. And that's just, there's a, it's going to sound stupid. There's a beauty to that, that someone would put their own lives in danger to, to stop someone else from losing theirs. That's just, uh, that's incredible. And so over the course of the case, you know, I'd see John and Maria and they obviously had a, a special place in the case because everyone else that had been shot lived, thankfully. Um, and then you get to know them at a different level too, whether it's the fact that every single day since this has happened, rain or shine, they go set up chairs by their son's gravestone and have conversations with them because that's all they have. And, uh, you know, I worry about them because, um, as you know, somehow the criminal justice system keeps the memory alive in a different way and it gives victims a purpose in a different way. And when that ends, all of a sudden, the attention drifts away, the support network drifts away. You don't have the victim advocates there at your beck and call in the same way. There's other victims they're dealing with. And pretty soon you're left with just each other and a gravestone. And I worry about them. And for some people, it drives them to purpose. Rhonda Fields, Tom Sullivan, uh, others. Um, I, I want to believe John and Maria will be that that couple too. But um, I'm glad I got to know them. I'm so sorry it was under these circumstances. No kidding. Wow. So powerfully told by you, George Brockler. I thank you immensely. This was an honor for you to return to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And I'll give you the last word. Oh, buddy, thanks for doing this, man. I, as you know, I could talk with you um, all night. In fact, my hope is as people are listening to this, they appreciate that this is the exact same conversation you would have on the phone if it wasn't being recorded and nobody was going to listen to it. This is how we'd talk to each other anyway. I think that's right, and I think it's more interesting than those financial transactions. I always felt the same way. My gosh, how do you do it? Uh, the criminal justice system is fascinating because it's real life and it's real emotion and you can really help people. You know, the nice thing that I loved as a prosecutor is I'm going to help you and, and you don't owe me a thing. 
I, I, I'm going to be there yeah. for you. I'm going to fight for you. George Brockler, you're a fighter. And uh, you are talented in so many fields. Everybody's wondering what you're going to do next. And uh, I can't wait. You know, the next one's going to be your 13th visit. Are you superstitious? Should we just skip to 14? No, no. I don't like they build those buildings right. with no 13th floor. No, right. no, 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 no. I don't want to do that because it creates an artificial distance between me and Q. And yes. if I'm going to beat Q, I want it to be legit. All right. The last thing that you and I would talk about if we were just chatting, what happened to your buffs against yeah. Minnesota? And how about my Broncos? Oh. First off, pretty happy with the Broncos performance thus far. And I think the, the whole thing with Teddy Bridgewater really makes uh, Fangio's decision seem like a smart one and the right one. He, he seems like, and let's, I don't want to jinx him. He seems like he's coming into his own with this team and this team is really trusting him. And, and that matters. As far as the buffs goes, look, we were what minutes away from defeating number five, Texas A&M. And I think it just puts us on a different trajectory and level of confidence. And we lose that nail biter in a way. And then we show up the next week and just get drubbed. Um, this, you know, we, we got to rebound this week or this season's lost. Did you hear about the Bronco connection to that drubbing? It almost wasn't fair no. before they played. You know who gave a pep talk to Minnesota? No. Carl Mecklenburg, number 77 of our Denver Broncos. And that guy was Come a hell of a on, Carl. He was. He was. And also a very upbeat, positive guy. Malicious on the field, but a very positive guy. I'm sorry to hear that, but he's a Minnesota dude. That's the way I heard you were when you played at Bear Creek. You know, you have a lot of options. I was talking to Trish. I was talking to Trish, who graduated Bear Creek, and she's a spring chicken, and she told me George is a lot younger than me. So you have a lot of options, right? How old are you now? 51. And what position did you play in football at Bear Creek? I was a strong linebacker and maybe the fourth string tight end. And if I was in on a play on offense, you knew the pass wasn't coming my direction. I was like a blocking tight end. Were you guys good? Well, listen, I wanted us to be a lot better than we were my senior year. We had all the potential in the world. We had some great athletes. But as the season progressed, it turns out uh, we were not destined for the playoffs. In fact, early on in the season, you pick who you want your homecoming game to be against. And our rivals was Green Mountain. And so we picked Green Mountain, and they crushed us. <laughs> There's nothing worse than having a homecoming game where the other team just shows up and beats you into the sod. And that's what happened. I remember that season, too playing for the first and only time at the Stutler Bowl out there in Cherry Creek. And it was all turf. And their turf, I think, was just blanketed over solid cement. And uh, I remember showing up there, looking across the field, and seeing every single yard left to right with a brand-new, pristine, white Cherry Creek uniform. That's what it looked like to us. And they had so many more people than we had. But we were like, whatever, let's, we're going to beat up on the rich kids. You get hit on turf, it is much different than being hit on uh, – on AstroTurf than it is getting hit on grass. And I remember getting clubbed and like your head hits the ground and all of a sudden you're thinking, where am I? I mean, there, there could be TBI from those moments. But it was a fun season. It was a good season, but we were not great, great, not at all. 
while you bring up memories, because when I played at GW, not football, I was smarter than that, golf, basketball, and baseball, and I watched people bang heads in football during the fall while I was golfing. Anyway, we thought the kids at Cherry Creek were kind of spoiled rich kids, just like you're describing, and now that I've had a kid go there, it's true, and and, and <laughs> and I've got no love lost for Bear Creek because in the Coliseum at the state championship, a school named Bear Creek knocked us out in the uh, round of eight. Oh. So oh. I bear a little oh, grudge, oh, but oh. not against you, George, especially not after this great podcast. Thanks for visiting and uh, keep it going and give my best to Marcia and the kids. And uh, please tell Amanda that I think she's smarter. And uh, and just just better than you. Now I cannot have her listen to this podcast. I was about to tell her. Now I can't do it because she's going to hear it, and it will explode the size of her head. <laughs> she's true. But it's all true. It's all true. All right, George. Have well, thanks for evening. having me on, Craig. This has been great. I know we talked about doing this for an hour. I think we went a little bit over that, but uh, man, it was great. Fantastic. That's the beauty of podcasts. Really, really well. There aren't any rules, and we can talk about whatever we want. And you were a great guest. Thanks for coming back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge. I can't wait till the next visit. And everybody's waiting to see what you do next. Well, at this point, it'll be shopping at Safeway. Perfect. All right. Have a good I'll, one. I hope I'll you have your you Safeway soon. card. Yeah, I do. I do. Thanks, Greg. Talk All to right. you too. See you. Bye. Bye. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? A whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my... My website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way, too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound, and then leave a positive review. 
push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. Wow, wasn't that George Brockler interview interesting? I thought so. I wondered what he would say when I asked him about Joe Altman, who is a central character in The Big Lie, which may ruin America, and may have been born right here in Colorado. I don't think maybe. I think it was. The New York Times printed a story this week about how the White House realized that this Dominion and Coomer stuff was a bunch of crap. It could not have happened, yet Rudy and Jenna Ellis... Yes, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, and what they all ran with it. And Donald Trump, of course, to the detriment of our country. Our democracy is under attack, and I think this guy, Joe Altman, is at the heart of it. And even though the White House knew, the New York Times reported, the reason we know that is because it was revealed in the lawsuit, Coomer v. Altman et al., Newsmax, Michelle Malkin, who I had my famous run-in with, and some other media outlets, Gateway Pundit, represented by Randy Corcoran. Now, how can that be? Gateway Pundit, a right-wing rag, they're accused of amplifying this story, but Randy Corcoran and his show amplified it, and we know the plaintiffs know about it because they just wrote about it in the brief cited by the New York Times. It's even hyperlinked. And it's not just Corcoran's Wake Up with Randy Corcoran show that they cite in that important brief. They cite Peter Boyles, who, of course, he lit the fire. He put Altman on with Altman's bullshit, unchallenged a couple times in a row. Now, Corcoran never challenges the guy. And you heard about George Brockler's relationship with him. Let me try to spell it out for you. It was November 3rd when Donald Trump got defeated by Joe Biden. That was election day. Of course, that night it wasn't decided. Everybody knew it wasn't going to be decided that night because some of the critical states were not going to count the mailed ballots till later. But a lot of smart people say, oh, we went to bed and Trump was going to win. Smart people, come on, be smarter than that. Dumb people... Maybe Joe Altman is one of those. I don't know. But you can judge him by listening to him on 710 KNUS. The podcasts have been saved. They're cited in that brief, which the New York Times based their story on. And the sound don't lie. Neither does the timeline. So that Tuesday happens. And then, as you will hear in the sound I'm about to play, Altman claims that, okay, he went elk hunting and he thought about things, but then somebody said Dominion cheated and he remembered an Antifa call that he intercepted with a guy named Eric who worked for Dominion who said he was going to fix the election and oh yeah, and by Tuesday a guy who wants to be a broadcaster who doesn't. He has a podcast, Conservative Daily, and he makes big news that Tuesday after the election, November 10th, and he comes on and he says, I intercepted that Antifa call and Eric Coomer's Antifa and he wrecked the election. And how did he amplify that? That very evening, he was booked as a guest at Randy Corcoran's Arapahoe County Tea Party. Now, how could that happen that fast? I don't know. 
that's being on top of things unless these guys know each other and maybe plan some things out together. Anyway, Tuesday, I guess I never go to a tea party meeting. God, what that's become. Anyway, Altman was there, and Corcoran loved it, and Saturday, the first chance he could, taking over my show that was ripped from me because I couldn't back Trump anymore. All I can do is rip him because he's ripping up America. But there, in my old spot, on November 14th, this is a great get. Corcoran gets Altman on, and Corcoran kind of lays the table, and maybe the reason... Corcoran's not sued is because Corcoran kind of admits he's going to start lying. He says, as a disclaimer, look, this is going to be a killer show. I'm going to put on Altman. Yeah, that is a killer show, putting on Altman. A lot of people are dead because of this bullshit. A lot of them died at the Capitol January 6th. I worry about who else may die over this big lie. But you can hear it for yourself that Corcoran, in effect, says, I may be starting a big lie here. So here's a disclaimer. Maybe I'm just doing it as a talk show host to get ratings. Or, and they don't even get ratings at CanUS. Have you ever wondered why you don't see ratings over there? Because they don't want to pay for ratings. Because they'd rather not know. They'd rather advertisers not know. But some people listen and look. Their impact has been stark. Look at this story. Saturday morning show, 9 a.m. There's Corcoran putting on Altman, and before he does it, he gives this disclaimer. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome back to our show. It's me, your pumped-up purveyor of principled passionate patriotism. And man, saddle up. Put your seatbelt on. We have got a killer show for you. Dominion is on my mind. We'll be hearing a lot about Dominion voting systems right in downtown Denver. Uh, the story is far from being told so far. And we will check in with the man, uh, one of the many people who started to draw attention to the evil doing, the potential evil doing. Uh, disclaimer. For anyone who's looking to, you know, put together a libel suit, this is my radio talk show. These are opinions. Sometimes I express controversial opinions in order to get people to talk about them and explore them and pursue them. So this is what I think. Put that in front of every statement I make, you libel lawyers out there, because I will be happy to sit down with you and do depositions if we need to down the road. And now Corcoran further explains how it is that Joe Altman is going to be a guest on his Denver Saturday morning show at Little Old Can U.S. And he kind of gives it away. Jen Ellis is involved. Jen Ellis, counsel for the president. And what more do we know about Joe Altman now? And you can look up Seth Abramson. Read all about that meeting at the Willard Hotel. Look at the pictures. This Joe Altman is not a nobody, and here he is starting the big lie on 710KNUS, his podcast, and then 710KNUS, his podcast, then Randy Corcoran's Tea Party, his podcast, and then Randy Corcoran's 
the Lowell Show at 9 a.m. How did this big lie grow? Oh, yeah, through FEC United, who's also being sued, who's out at Bandemir, who's connected with all that? Randy Corcoran. So Randy Corcoran says this about Joe Oldman and how he knows the guy. Really, if, if you don't have time to listen to anything else this day or this weekend, be here at 10 o'clock because Joe Oldman, uh, in fact, George was talking about Joe quite a bit. Um, his company, one of his many companies, Pin Network, is a sponsor of George's show. That is really cool. And um, he's one of the guys that has outed Dominion. In fact, what he has done and the information that he has come up with with regard to Dominion will blow your mind. And he's serious. This is not publicity. This is not radio. This guy is a patriot. I, I knew him from years ago when my daughter was married in one of his facilities. And, uh, and he was bartending that night. He just came in and, to say hello, and, and uh, we got to know each other. And then he was gone. I mean, it was kind of out of my life until this year when his patriotism and his many, many talents all merged together. And he had to come out and be in the forefront of organizations like FEC and the United American Defense Fund, uh, you know, Tig Tiggins Group and Tig Tigans Group. See, I, I yell at Peter for mispronouncing that name, and then I screw it up. Tig Tigan, write it down. Um, he'll join us at 10 o'clock. And the reason I know he's serious, the reason I know this is not some kind of, you know, publicity stunt or to try and keep people's hopes up falsely that there were such shenanigans in this election that it should not be certified. No way, no how until all of the investigations and opportunities to find and present evidence are done. And Joe is part of that evidence now because yesterday we polished up an affidavit and sent it directly to Jenna Ellis, uh, Donald Trump's. And it, actually, she sent it to me because she put it together after conversations with him and I reviewed it and cleaned it up. Uh, it wasn't dirty, but you know these these guys are working so fast on this stuff. We have over 500 affidavits from individual citizens uh, in these battleground states about the election fraud or at least the election, air quotes, irregularities that have been observed and uh, over 1,200 actual complaints into a hotline, not formal affidavits. Now, remember, an affidavit is you are swearing under oath. Your signature is notarized to the truth of the statements you are making. And we finished that up yesterday, and Joe got it notarized and sent it back to me, and I forwarded it to Jenna Ellis, and it is now part of a public record that I hope, I pray, will very soon turn into a court case. I read online last night briefly, and I'm going to try and find out more about this story today, that Dominion servers were picked up in Germany by, with the help of German officials, U.S. military personnel. Could that be the reason that, uh, that Donald Trump fired his, uh, his defense director? I, I don't know. It will, and I don't know enough about that story to talk about it very much. But I know an awful lot about what's going on with Dominion. In fact, Joe came to our Tea Party meeting this Tuesday, another standing room only, packed, socially distanced and masked, of course, <clears throat> uh, Tea Party meeting, and uh, presented some of the evidence he has about the Antifa ties to this character named Eric Coomer. And um, because Joe is a master of computer technology, that's what PIN Network is. 
and understands coding and how these things work, we will have a very informative conversation with my friend Joe Oldman, and that will be at 10 o'clock. So it was not just that once that Altman interacted with Corcoran. They're working together kind of as lawyer-client. It's a remarkable situation with Corcoran involved as counsel in this case. I don't know how this works. Maybe the plaintiff appreciates the fact that they have that quality of lawyer on the other side, and they don't want to mess with it. They can swoop in whenever it wants because... Look, Coomer has all the time in the world to sue other people who spread this garbage. This could be the test case. I don't know the strategy exactly, but I do know this. This is affecting America. And I also know that consistent with the way they do things at KNUS, if corporate lies, then Boyles will swear to it. That's the old pattern. It's broken a little bit. Those two are... At odds, that was predictable. But back in the day, when Corcoran put on a guy like Altman, Boyles wanted a piece of it, and he got it. There was Altman on with Corcoran, and Boyles wanted the big story in his studio, on his show, on Monday, and he got him. November 17th, before almost anybody else, Peter Boyles puts on Joe Altman, and first he's frustrated because old man is not showing up. So the guy's flustered even after his decades in the radio. So he goes to a right-wing standby. Hey, do you still watch pro sports? Those pro sports are terrible. You know, black people play them. Colin Kaepernick used to be part of pro sports. What a racist piece of garbage. Remember when Boyle said, I was... Craig Kaepernick toward the end after we had our falling out. And let me tell you what happened there. It was me wanting to argue about Donald Trump and others saying, no, thank you. Except for capitalists who said, come on over. We can argue about it. And we did. And then they got mad at KNUS. And I said, look, I want to argue about Donald Trump. Nobody over here does. And then they took me off the air, claimed it was something else. I had no deal at KHOW other than to be a guest. I told that to everybody in my audience, and then my podcast got held back, and then manipulated by a guy who turned out to be a Nazi, exposed by Colorado Springs Antifa, and some good people down there, amplified on Twitter by people like Heidi Beetle. turns out Joe Altman doesn't like Heidi Beetle, but Heidi Beetle exposed, along with others, Kirk Whitland, who had been my producer, who it turned out was not only Mega Mega, he was a neo-Nazi, as evidenced by his postings. And you can look up Kirk Whitland and hear that same sad story that came out, oh, I don't know, about six weeks after my departure. But it wasn't enough for me to depart. I had to be lied about by Randy Corcoran, who said, along with Kirk Whitland, hey, Craig set this all up with Brian Stelter at CNN. And we know that because he was wearing a fancy blue suit. This was November 16, 2019, two weeks after I'd worn that fancy blue suit because I had to go to a bar mitzvah, uh, bat mitzvah. 
at a synagogue right after the show, and I wanted to be well-dressed. But Randy Corcoran lied. I was really dressed like a schlepper. Yeah, I put on the good suit again on Sunday, but they used this fact against me for a week, and Peter Boyles did it too, Peter Boyles especially. They had on so-called experts about how Sunday's shows are booked, and Silverman surely worked with Stelter. No, it was just a big news story because they ripped away my mic right while I was ripping Donald Trump. So Boyles has this pattern where he wants the sensationalism and he wants to go along with the bullshit when it suits his purposes. And he was going along with Corcoran's bullshit. And uh, now Joe Altman shows up and Boyles is happy. And he's so ingratiating to this guy, letting him tell his story Altman's story that's so full of shit that any decent questioner would have gotten to the bottom of it right there and then, and maybe we wouldn't have this problem in the country with this lie out of Colorado leading to the big lie and insurrection and a majority of Republicans believing the kind of bullshit that Altman and Corcoran are putting out there and that Peter Boyle's put out there at a critical time. Listen to this. We got him? Good. Whoa. I was sweating bullets. Please say good morning. Really looking forward to this. This is Joel Altman, O-L-T-M-A-N. Hey, Joel, thanks, man. Good morning and welcome, because you did the show Saturday. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. It's Joe, J-O-E. Oh, okay. Altman. Shows you what I know. With two N. Sorry. So spell it right. So I do it. Uh, O-L-T-M-A-N-N. Gotcha. Um do your bio. Well, I've been called worse, Peter. So uh, you, I, I, <laughs> come sit on this side of the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you worse. Um, do, a, do a bio and talk about yourself so people know who you are. Um, I'm the CEO of a tech company. Um, um, by day, I started uh, FEC United, which is an organization that works um, to kind of bring some sensibility to our community and empower people. I started that about uh, 26 weeks ago that now has 91,000 members. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm one of the co-hosts of Conservative Daily. I had to come out. I was I was using the uh, pen name Joe Otto for that for the last 11 years and well, you, you, because of all this. You do a radio show or as a, a pod? Pod Podcast. Okay, it's a yeah, pod. We're okay. the, it's actually a really good podcast. No, God, I mean, it's not no. as popular as you, but it's uh, you know, we're in the top hey. forty. <laughs> hey. Give it a plug. Where do you who co-hosts with you, and where do you do it? Um, we do it at our studio, and it's uh, in um, Denver, Colorado. And our co-host is uh, Max McGuire. He's uh, he's uh, quite the individual. You can see old man is a wannabe. He wants to be like Peter Boyles. God forbid. Anyway, he got a lot more hits on his conservative daily podcast. If that's what you want, if you're going to make up stuff to the detriment of the country. But Altman has a lot of backers. Don't sell him short. They have big meetings out at Bandemir. And here he kind of explains to Boyles with little resistance how he hates Antifa, and he brings up the name Heidi Beetle, which is interesting to me because she's one of the people I credit with exposing Kirk Whitland 
And you can just read up on that story and find out all about that. So I had a meeting on October 15th at uh, Bandemir with, um, for the FEC United. And uh, at that meeting, I, I basically said... May, 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 I ask who, may I ask who you met with? I'm just going to interject from time to time for clarification. Who did you meet with at Bandemir? Who did you meet with? No, we held an FEC United meeting at Bandemir. May I ask so we you? actually held a... Okay. Was it, was it, was it, was it, was it, was it, people there. was it the night of the rally or was it another night? No, no. So October 15th was a, was a, we, we had our own meeting. So we have FEC United meetings uh, every other week and we get together and FEC stands for faith, education, and commerce, uh, the three pillars of our community. So um, we built this organization uh, on top of a law and policy center that allow for us to have teeth and give people in the community back the ability to uh, have constitutional integrity. And be- who, who was at the meeting? Um, the meeting was, yeah, so we have people from the community that actually come to these meetings. I mean, we have somewhere between three and 500 people that show up uh, every time we have a meeting. So well, any, any, pro- any prominent names? Were any prominent names at the meeting? Well, I think there's lots of prominent people that are involved in it, but none that I would probably stay on this call. Okay. Um, so uh, I uh, uh, so at that meeting, I basically called out the Antifa journalists, the activist journalists that don't represent telling a story. They represent, you know, slandering people in the community that stand up against, uh, you know, their socialist and uh, communist values. And so I said, actually on tape, that we actually live cast it across across the internet that we were, you know, we were going to uncover that. We were going to do the same doxing that they do to others. We we're going to do to them. And we we're going to make sure everyone knew that they were Antifa. So uh, in in doing this, I, uh, um, you know, they, they wrote a, a story on it. The Colorado Times recorder, uh, one of the uh, Antifa journalists, or suspected Antifa journalists, I, said, I, should, I should say. Would you name, um, would you name, a, would you name the journalist? Oh, I'll name a few of them. I, I know that, I'll tell you one in Colorado Springs that's a Antifa leader and a part of our revolution, which is the same organization that Chris Jacks is a part of, that threatened to kill Americans in the street, um, that said he infiltrated and represents most uh, majorities in the Democrat Party across Colorado. And that's uh, Heidi Beadle. She uh, uses her information at the Colorado Independent and the uh, Colorado Springs Business or Colorado Springs Independent and the Colorado Springs Business Journal in order to dox business people, right, that, that again, disagree or speak up against their uh, Antifa. So she is a known Antifa journalist, uh, but there's others in Denver. There's actually some really prominent ones in Denver um, that uh, are quite friendly or associated with the Antifa movement, which, by the way, is not an idea. It's an actual movement. It's okay, an actual no, I, I understand all that. Who, who in Denver, by name, plays this? Uh, so there's there's an old saying that loose lips sink ships. I get it. And uh, I will use that information when I have to use that information. All right. Uh, right now, it's again, it's not pertinent to what I found out about Eric Coomer, nor how it happened. And the only reason I brought up the meeting on the 15th, because, it, you know, I came out and told everyone on the 15th that I was doing research on Antifa. I, I, I mean, I, it follows the path of everything that I've been saying. Um, but again, I didn't know who Eric was, nor did I care who Eric was. I didn't feel like he was an important part of the puzzle. Um, so fast forward to the election, election night, we all go to sleep thinking that President Trump had won. He had comfortable leads in all swing states. Uh, it was predicted uh, 
you know, that night that he'd win at somewhere around 300, 305 electoral votes. And uh, what was weird is that they wouldn't call those states. Like, they were calling states that were really close with Trump and Biden, but they, the news media was not calling those states. And all of us had this sinking feeling that, up oh, here we go. Now, here it gets good because I like the timeline. And he explains, Altman does, when it was that it finally occurred to him that he was sitting on big information, and it cl- he claims it came to him while he was elk hunting. You got that? Elk hunting. And as he tells this bullshit story, notice zero pushback from the host, Peter Boyles, who only wants him on the next day, too, because it's good for uh, his ego and to be part of a big story. Listen to this. Fast forward past the election to Friday. I'm up elk hunting with my friends. Um, I'm sitting down. Somebody sends me an article to read um, about what happened in Georgia and the fact that the voting machines uh, uh, glitched or I'm sorry, didn't glitch. They did not glitch. I didn't. They they shut down for a couple hours for an update. And so I started reading and thinking to myself, well, first of all, why would it why would the machines shut down in these? in these counties for an update. And then I got to the part where it had Eric Coomer's name. And then all of a sudden I put it together and I said, wait a minute, I know that. I, that's the guy from Dominion was in 40 states. I didn't know that they had prominent uh, uh, responsibility for 23 states. Um, by their own admission in 2012, they, they had over 70 million of the votes in the U.S. they were responsible for. So I didn't know any of that at the time. So I started doing research. Um, I, I sat down and for the next couple hours just started making phone calls and texting people and, and emailing and gathering information and doing more research on Eric Coomer. And the, then I said to myself, I've got to get access to his social account. Well, his social account was tied up, was pretty tight. I mean, he, he makes sure that he keeps everything behind a pretty tight wall, but I was able to gain access to his Facebook page. And um, when I went through his Facebook page, and again, I, you have this, you know, this sinking feeling in your gut. As I went through his Facebook page, I was like, oh, my gosh. So I started sending friends of mine texts that said, I think I'm in trouble. I think I have information on someone who is Antifa that is you know, responsible for the fate of our elections. Right, this is and, a perfect, uh, perfect time for me to break. You set it up. And so it was. Joe Altman returns to Peter Boyle's 7 a.m. This is cited in the plaintiff's brief, Coomer's brief. They know all about Boyle's giving an open mic to Joe Altman to spew this big lie. And now Boyle's wonders why his audience buys it, because he put it out there. Used to be that you didn't put on pure destructive bullshit like truthers after 9-11. There were those conspiracy theories, but... People who are decent thought better of that. At least I did. Most of the people I knew in the business. But the business changed with Donald Trump, and a lot of people changed with him or were simply exposed. Again, Altman comes on, and he's given a big welcome. Welcome home. But it's interesting. As Altman talks, he kind of describes himself. Beware of crackpots. I've been doing this nonstop for the last couple of days. What have you been? What have you been doing? Doing a lot of shows? Yeah, just doing a lot of shows and talking to a lot of people, and 
um, frankly, just getting making sure that all the information that we have is uh, locked tight. So, okay, let us. It, it, uh, I, I agree with uh, okay. Lynn Wood's assessment. Okay, again, there's her statements. W- when do you think the cards will get turned over? Well, I think you have to be really careful when you turn the cards over, right? So you have to give people the opportunity to come forward. You have to make sure you validate all the claims. You got to make sure you're not dealing with crackpots that that did not have the knowledge that they they say they had. Um, now you're hearing about videos coming out of of people inside of Dominion actually talking about having the ability to turn over uh, millions of uh, of votes. So I mean, it's it, it's as I said before yesterday. Um, I think the code becomes very complicated. It is not transparent. Occasionally, I like Boyle's style of saying. Do a quick bio. Now, normally that's a sign that he hasn't taken the time to do a bio himself, do the research. But occasionally it's instructive with a guy like Altman. How would he put it? So Boyle says, says, do a quick bio. And then he quickly launches into a BS story about Dr. Coomer, the guy he torments, the guy he chased out of Denver the guy who got all those death threats because because why because he was the scapegoat for Donald Trump and where was this thought up just by Joe Altman when Joe Altman was with Bannon and uh, Roger Stone and others in DC on January 5 this guy seems like sort of a made guy to me at the least we know he knows Randy Corcoran and works together putting together an affidavit and with Jenna Ellis, and he wants to be a broadcaster. You put it together. I came upon this because by accident. So I, I did not know what I was actually looking for when um, when I had the information on Eric. I happened to be looking for something completely different, which was activist, um, uh, Antifa activist journalists that were in Colorado um, that, frankly, um, used their platforms to dox and or uh, slander people. So we, we, we actually started... Um, this process of of creating lawsuits so we can sue some of these journalists. So I needed to get more information. I infiltrated a call with Antifa. Um, Eric was on that call. To my knowledge, I believe it was Eric that was on that call, just based upon the information that was there. Um, somebody, uh, you know, said Eric is the Dominion guy, um, and uh, he stated on that call when asked what's going to happen when Trump becomes president that. Um, don't worry about the election. Uh, Trump's not going to win. I made sure of it. And at the point, at that point, I didn't actually know what I had even then. Even when I did research on Eric Coomer, who's got a PhD in, in nuclear physics, he's a very, very smart guy. He's got a very vast history in code. Um, he holds multiple patents, which he's assigned to Dominion um, in the voting sphere. In some more interesting self-talk, Altman talks about the head of a snake that he doesn't want to do conjecture like the New York Times. That's interesting, given the New York Times pulled Altman's pants down, and his pants will keep getting pulled down because Rachel Maddow is on it now. She wants Altman's deposition. You know, Altman failed to show up for his first deposition, and if you read the brief hyperlinked in the New York Times, you will follow what they won't talk about on Denver Trump Radio, which is Altman is full of crap. And it's spelled out on shows like Peter Boyle's with sound bites like this where Boyle's 
doesn't just receive the story. He's loving it. He's embracing it. He's talking about the great team of uh, election-rigging fighters, Lynn, Rudy. They're going to use RICO. You're a great guy, Joe Oldman. You know, throwing things out there that's uh, conjecture, uh, contrary to you know, the New York Times and some of the other uh, media outlets that, frankly, I think are garbage. Um, this is this is a this is they have to go through certain steps to protect the people that are actually coming forward. They have to make sure they get as much information on who's involved in this, so they can wipe out large swaths of these people, so they can keep the people that are coming forth uh, safe. Right? I mean, it's uh, it, it's you can't get into multiple states and do the things that they're doing without having people involved in it um, I mean, at every level. Yeah, I mean, conspiracies, it, Ricos, and you're, I, thought, I thought a lot about you last night. I, I did a lot of reading. Um, I read yeah. about this, tr- tried every day, but it kind of, you're really kind of presenting a Rico. Uh, you, Lynn, um, Giuliani, who used the Rico to clean up the Godfathers in New York, um, it's a Rico. I mean, you're talking about racketeering and corrupt organization, whoever did this. If you know this guy's great, Joe Altman's here. Would you venture names on who you believe did this? Yeah, look, I think that, I think it goes from top to bottom. I think we're dealing with a massive conspiracy that involves people at every level of government. I think that if you go back and just start doing research on things that were said um, in the FBI, and again, I find it very difficult myself to believe that there's that much evil. Um, or cynicism in the world, so it's it's tough for me to swallow personally. Um, but the further you get into this, the more you can start seeing that there's an underlying culture and cancer that's been developing. So there you have it. I think it's the big story of our times, and I've figured it out for a while now. It's not dissimilar to what they do in the tabloids where they take a kernel of a fact or a supposed fact or somebody saying that a fact exists and then going off wildly after that. In the case of Altman, he said he intercepted an Antifa call. Say what? How do you do that? What are you talking about? And in the case of my minor league situation, where I had Corporan and a neo-Nazi say that I was wearing a nice blue suit, That allowed them to launch on me for a week, claiming that I was part of a conspiracy with CNN, etc. And fortunately, I don't have much in the way of damages because I don't want to be around or associated with Denver Trump Radio or people like that. But as for Altman and what they did at 710 KNUS with him and what Corcoran has done to make up shit and then magnify it, For his own benefit. Now he's the go-to lawyer. Oh my God, is that going to collapse all around him? I can see it now. I've been around this business. I respect lawyers. But not this guy. This guy is helping to ruin our country. I said it to George Brockler, who I hope will stand up to Trumpism. That's what we need in this country. That's part of the purpose of this podcast. Thanks for listening to all this. The show is far from over. Michael Bailey and I have the best discussion ever, followed by the Troubadour with a wonderful song called Just Try Me. Remember, if you like my show, tell a friend. Like it. Follow us. Five stars. Thumbs up. Subscribe. Thank you. 
Well, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call. 303-861-2800 at Springer and Steinberg. We do all kinds of law. Call me 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Let's welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, the guy who just assumed the role of second, second most times in the lounge. Michael Bailey, congratulations. I don't know how you feel about being in second place. You probably won first. Do you know who's ahead of you? I I don't. Who is ahead of me? It's George Brockler. And he had 11, and you had seven visits. Kusera Muhammad mm-hmm. Bai is at six. It's kind of like hosting Saturday Night Live. I think there's that much honor and respect that goes to it. You're, I don't know if Tom Hanks beat Steve Martin in that race, but you're up there in the top two. How does it feel? Well, that is good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, hopefully, uh, it's one of those things where it's been useful and helpful to people for me to be on instead of just, man, I wish this guy would not come on anymore. So, But here's the cool part of this show. For late September, you go up to number eight. This is your eighth visit. Mm-hmm. But the other star of this show this week is George Brockler, who is now up to number 12. Yep. So. Well. At least I don't feel like I'm competing, and you know, if I if I never catch him, that's okay too. Yeah, I'm just happy to be here and happy to talk to you. Here's why I like talking to you because I think we have a lot in common. First of all, we're both attorneys and family guys, but we are dog lovers. I have two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. Right. So I, uh, I will write pet trusts, which is if um, you have, you can uh, earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you're, to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. But my father-in-law doesn't like dogs. And so he would not want to take the dogs. Uh, and even if he did, he'd be mean to them. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. Does the dog get a say in any of this? No, no. There are no dog rights in America. Well, you know, I mean, dogs are treated as personal property under, you know, Colorado law. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, if your dogs are anything like mine, I have three human children and two canine children. Um, you know, obviously I'm not going to treat the dogs exactly the same as my kids, but I do think of them as being my canine children. And so, you know, since they don't have a real voice, I mean, you know, 
they can woof and they'll, I mean, sometimes I think dogs are smarter than the rest of us uh, humans because, you know, they understand lots of human words and we don't single sing it. We don't speak a single word of dog language, but uh, maybe you don't. <laughs> I do a little. <laughs> well, I, I can tell when my dog is telling me that it's time for a walk or if they're hungry and things like that. But, you know, it's interpreting the bark and, you know, contextual clues. Right. But, but the beauty of your practice and I've seen you work with me and Trish, but you leave it up to the people who are creating the end-of-life documents. So, for example, even though dogs don't have rights, there's no reason you can't have, you know, little Bowser come in and do the wag-the-tail test. Hey, would you rather go with Grandpa or with uh, Aunt Tilly over here? And, right. And just... But... but you can get creative, right? And do you make judgments as people leave a lot of money to dogs? Or is it your job to say, you know what? It's your life. It's your money. I will effectuate what you want to do. Well, you know, it is their life. It's their money. And I will effectuate what they want to do. Now, every once in a while, I get somebody who wants to do something that I'm like, no, nah, we can't do that. You know, if, like if you wanted to put in your, um, your estate plan, Craig, if you wanted to put that, you'll leave money to your kids, but only if they marry a nice Catholic girl, then we might have a problem because, you know, marriage, marital status is problematic. Catholic, you know, religious status is problematic, especially since you're not Catholic. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I use that because you, know, you used to do your show with Dan Kaplis, who is Catholic. And so uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, those kind of violate public policy. So we can't do, can't necessarily say you have to do this to get something, but you can incentivize people and the thing is that you're in control of your own estate plan. I'm just helping you carry it out and, you know, have it work you've within the bounds of the law. Yeah, you've been doing this for decades now. Mm -hmm. And so have I. Every once in a while, I think, boy, I've heard this kind of thing before. But then, <laughs> I don't know, once a week, maybe once a month, you get something that is just, wow, I, I never thought about that before. And right. And people are so different. That's sort of the fun of practicing law. There's a lot of the right. same thing, but there's always some differences and nuances. That's true. Like what I saw in Channel 9, a story that we now have a statute that allows composting of bodies as opposed to burial or cremation. This is the right. law in Colorado. Wow. Yep. There's something yeah. that probably becomes part of your end-of-life attorney practice? Well, it's certainly something that uh, we can talk about. Um, you know, some people want to be buried. Some people want to be cremated. Some people don't care. Other people don't have any real preference one way or the other. But, you know, for those who, you know, are like, they're not necessarily big fans of burial or cremation. I mean, I'm not sure what the cost difference is between composting and burial or cremation. But, you know, people who want to be, um, you know, they should pay for us. We become the fertilizer. You know, you put in a tube, and so maybe we can make a little money on this end of right. life deal. And I see this, pardon the pun, as a growing business. Yeah, that it very well could be. I mean, I always liked the thing where they'll put you in like some sort of composting pod, and then they've also got like a tree seed or tree sampling in yes. there. So you you turn into a tree. I'm what like, what kind of tree would you like to be? I would like to be a blue spruce tree, just because nice. it's a nice tree. I want to be a redwood. 
because I you want to be a redwood. You you would you would want to be a redwood. You're gonna be you'd be tall and prominent, and you know you'd be you know tower over others so that you could make them feel inferior. That sounds like something you would do, Craig. Uh, that that's me. I'd like to do that. Plus, before this week, you didn't hear about them burning down. Although I think a couple of them got caught in California. Anyway, that's true. Composting is a real option, and I bet a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know that, and it's something to think about. I also learned by statute, you cannot grow anything with human remains that's edible. Ah. That, so. I guess that would make sense from a scientific standpoint if you've got some sort of organism that would, or you know, toxin that would be in a human that then we could transfer into an edible thing. That would make sense as to why you want to have that not be the case. I love your website. I like working with you. And I think you are ahead of your time because your kind of law practice is now the way a lot of lawyers practice. And it's not that you don't have a home office. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? That's true. One of them has filing cabinets and a printer, and I can lock that up because everybody needs filing cabinets and a printer. But it's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. Right. Because you know what's back and the pandemic may be easing. Please, God, let it be so traffic. Right. And nobody wants yep. to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. You came to us. Yes. So I know. Yep. And plus, it's much more fun than sitting in my office hoping somebody who lives close calls. Like, I would much be, I would much rather go visit people where they are and help them than be like, well, why don't you drive 45 minutes across Denver? And they're like, oh, it's near rush hour, so that's going to be two hours? No, nah, that's not a problem. Now, let me come see you, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Now, you are the guy who brought up religion, so let me do it on you, because this okay. is one of the reasons I like Michael Bailey, because... I like BYU, and you're a BYU booster, and Mm -hmm. there's just something about that place that reeks of integrity, honesty. I I like BYU grads, and I like to watch them play football because they're not always going to win, but they're always going to try hard, especially at Mm -hmm. home. What a home field advantage they have. Talk to me about BYU, 3-0. They're favored by 23 against South Florida. Are you BYU proud right now? I am, but I'm also BYU cautious because I have learned about BYU football that you can never underestimate their ability to blow it. They can be up 70 to three with 18 seconds left, and I still feel like they have the ability to lose that game because BYU are experts at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Oh, yeah, little faith. I thought you guys had a lot of faith. Oh, yeah, little faith. But see, my faith is not centered in uh, BYU football. There's other, you know, as as a as a Christian, my faith is centered in Jesus Christ, not in the BYU football team. Because the BYU football team will let you down. That's just what they do. Now they're three and zero. They're playing really well, which kind of surprised all of us, given the loss of their quarterback, who went number two overall in the NFL draft. So it's it's nice to see that they're continuing on. You know, all of the talk of, oh, BYU is going to go undefeated and go to the college football playoff. I'm like, let's uh, let's hold our horses just a little bit there 
They still have to play Baylor. They still have to pay, play USC, who are going to be tough opponents. But it is a lot of fun to watch them play. And, you know, it's added bonus when they win. When did you go to BYU? I graduated from BYU in 2003. And I entered in the fall of 1996. Because I, I did my freshman year. And then I went to Russia for two years as a missionary. And then came home and then graduated in 2003. They must have had some blown games back when you were there to be scarred with those memories so hard. How did they well, do I, when you were there? Uh, they, they were pretty good when I was there. Um, you know, Steve Sarkeesian was a quarterback when I was there. You know, he's head, head coach at uh, Texas, Texas now. Yeah. Um, and, but then we had what we refer to as the Gary Croton error. You know, not era, error. I mean, he just, I don't know if he didn't know how to recruit or what, but we had some very, you know, some terrible seasons where you're losing to the likes of Nevada and, you know, San Jose State. And I'm like, nothing against Nevada or San Jose State, but when you've, when you've won a national championship like BYU has, you shouldn't be losing to second and third tier <laughs> That's programs. what scarred you. It almost yes. put me off CU football when I went to CU Law School. Chuck Fairbanks was there, and do you know who CU lost to then at Folsom uh, Field? Uh, CSU? Drake. <laughs> Drake? Drake. Yeah. See, see, low points like that are why you, you, you never want to – you can't trust your team quite enough. <laughs> BYU just kind of put a hit on Colorado with its move about a week ago to join the Big 12. Are you kidding yep. me? How did BYU, west of us in Utah, join the Midwest Conference that used to be the Big 8 that did CU was once a part of? Well, you know, CU bolted for the Pac-12, thinking that there would be more money and you know, they'd be able to recruit better. And so far it hasn't quite played out like that, but you know, I mean, conference realignments, it's always interesting how conferences, you know, they used to be regional. They used to be rivalries. And I think money kind of changed all of that. So it's something, and it's for all sports, Michael Bailey, mm -hmm. big basketball guy, go nuggets. Yep. I'm psyched for them, but BYU has rich history there. And Michael Bailey, mm -hmm. a high school basketball official, stays in the game. Now, for all the marbles in our sports trivia, what other three teams are entering the Big 12 along with BYU? Cincinnati, Houston, and I believe Central Florida. Gosh, you're good. And you had no warning on that. You are smart. <laughs> That's why you are my end-of-life estate attorney. What fun it is to visit with you. Tell us what's going on in your practice and how people can get in touch with you. So just uh, meeting with people and helping people, schedule them so that I can go visit them when it's convenient for them and you know help them get their... Um, everything in order so their final affairs will be managed. Um, my direct phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. And you do it efficiently with the customer, the client in mind. The only problem with Michael Bailey, in my judgment, he doesn't charge enough. I mean, oh. we paid full freight, and it gave us peace of mind for what? 
It's almost been a decade since we met with Michael Bailey, and every once in a while we can tweak things, and he's right there. He's a steady presence. You've heard about him for years. I give my endorsement to Michael Bailey, and I'm so proud that he's a sponsor of my podcast. His number is 720-394-6887. What's the best quality of a lawyer? One, they're smart. They know Stuff like Cincinnati, Central Florida, Houston, joining BYU off the top of their head. But they also are responsive. They return calls. If you call Michael at 720-394-6887, you can sort out all these end-of-life decisions. And you're talking with a fun family man. Michael, what a pleasure it was to have you back for your eighth time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to be here. All right, Michael Bailey. Have a great one. See you later. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have have this. It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Troubadour, you have done it again. I like this song, Just Try Me. It's simple. I think it's sort of country. When did you become a country singer, Dave Gunders? I love all kinds of music, Craig. I don't think of it as country, but it is simple. It's guitar. It's a guitar song, and I have this cool tremolo effect on the, on the electric. What was that word you had? It's called tremolo. How do you spell that? T-R-E-M-E-L-O. Now you're getting fancy on me. It must be a musical term of art. It is. It's a. It's an effect that guitarists use. I suppose keyboardists can use it, and it's a. It's kind of a. Wah, 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 wah. So it's. The, it's not an even note. It's almost like a vibrato. You know, I focus on the lyrics more. 
because I'm a word guy, and this song has all the Dave Gunders elements, sun, moon, stars. You keep going back to the basics, right? That's right. That's right. Go back to the fountain. And it's got the concept of time and that it's getting late, which is perfect for Michael Bailey. Hey, do some end-of-life estate planning. But I like the persistence of this song. It's kind of begging. Hey, you know, just try me. You can make a change, and I'm the change you need. That's right. Yeah. He's... uh. It's it's um he's he's he hasn't been thwarted in his desires so it's 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 not a it's not a, a song of desperation, he's t- he's telling her what he thinks uh you know she should do and that that and that there's a there's going to be um, reward for her and he's taking the long game and if he's trying to change her mind, then he realizes I'm going to take an easy approach and that's kind of what I did with George Brockler. To me, he's very smart, very skilled, a political leader, and I'd like him to change and lead the change of the GOP away from Trump and Trumpism, but if I did it in too aggressive a way, that would be a turnoff, right? That's right. No, Craig's Lawyer's Lounge is a, is a, is a place for... for for uh, peaceful Ma- discourse. Maximum collegiality. I've always argued that Craig's Lawyer's Lounge is collegial because that's the way I feel about lawyers. My God, Ryan Call, who's been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, you wouldn't know him, but he was head of the Colorado Republican Party and a member of a big law firm downtown. He just got disbarred for stealing a bunch of money and you know who he stole it from? No. Donald Trump. Oh. A Donald Trump-related organization, which is not good, you know, because uh, you can't steal from them. Oh, I think I, I, think I support that, though. No. <laughs> it, it, and I suppose you support Mark Milley taking over all powers toward the end, right? No, just no, just thievery from, from Donald Trump. I'm right. sorry, my, my political... Uh... My my political stance here is coming through. That's right. <laughs> it's in keeping with the show. And you are the guy who has always had a bad feeling about Donald Trump, but you kept me as a friend even when I was not seeing it the way you did. So I thank you for that, Troubadour. Well, you know, and getting back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge and being able to air differences, um, you know, without being being angry or off-putting, I think it's 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 a it's a skill that we need to have and that, you know, that tolerance that um, is, is underlying, I think, is something we all need to learn from now. Right. And your basic optimism shines through. I love that about you. Got to celebrate every day that we have and keep the faith. And you know what I think people need to keep the faith in is in America and democracies, yeah. because increasingly... You hear about people contemplating, maybe I'll move somewhere else. With COVID, we're not performing well on vaccines. You and I are vaccinated. Everybody should be. But Americans aren't. We lag way behind the rest of the world. And you know what happens? If people lose the faith in America, then people of means may move. They may move to an island or Costa Rica or New Zealand or Israel or Australia They may do those things, and then what happens in America? We lose those people, and that's how democracies fade as well. 
How to keep the faith in America. Have you ever even thought about leaving this country? I would never leave. No. No, why? And, and I mean, first of all, I'm an American through and through. And secondly, there's no better place to go. Even in these times, I mean, the, the countries that you even mentioned, you know, countries that we normally think of as peaceful countries, they have their own, their own rifts right now happening, their own polarity. I agree. We have to stay here and uh, fight for what's ours, and that's democracy. I'll tell you what I love about America, and you and I experienced what we like, and we talked about it. What was it? Wednesday night, you went to Red Rocks to hear music, and you watched the moon come up. And me, I had a double header downtown, and it made me feel like a kid. That's another line from, from your song uh, about a newborn kid. Yeah. I kind of felt nervous because I went to another podcast put on by the Denver Post. It was a basketball podcast, and there in front of me was Tim Connolly, uh, who's the GM of the Nuggets, and Coach Mike Malone, head coach for the last seven years of my Denver Nuggets, our Denver Nuggets. And I talked to Mike Malone. It made me feel like a kid. I got up and I asked a question, and I got nervous. You know, I speak to people, but... I asked about Comcast, hey, can we watch the Nuggets, please, on my home TV? Anyway, uh, and then I went right over to watch uh, the Rockies play the Dodgers. And that's quite a doubleheader on Blake Street. Same time you were at Red Rocks. Tell everybody about that. I went to see a band called Portugal The Man. It's a... It's a it's a group that I think appeals to a younger generation, but I love their songs, and uh, I wanted to check them out. They were great. And did they surprise you? Was Red Rocks, was it packed? Are they doing anything for COVID up there? I was able to go and get a ticket. Um, it was, But it, it filled up, and um, great songs. I, I recommend people check them out. Portugal you, the Man. Yeah. I, I know you have your vaccination card. I, I brought it this time. Did anybody want to look at it? You know, this time, no. I think it depends on the group that's performing. Um, when I saw Nathaniel Rateliff, um, they had required the, these cards. And uh, this time, there was no there was no uh, request for, for showing your vaccine. That's cool that on a nice late summer, early autumn night, you are drawn to Red Rocks, fair to say, for music. Oh, best place. And I feel drawn to Coors Field. Yeah. Because that's my best place. Well, but I like being with you, Troubadour, and I like every week hearing new music by you. And I'm just going to try another song by you called Just Try Me by our Troubadour, David Gunders. Thanks, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig.
try me Just try me Sun gone down And the moon climbs high stars around scattered across the sky have mercy I'm like a newborn kid open your heart to me there was a time you did Just try me Hard to turn away That higher truth Love will find a way If you want it to This day can be forever Let it shine Can I change your mind I can change your mind Just try me This heart Like a big old drum Back in the second line Gleaming in the sun Celebrate Every day we have Keeping the faith Good times and bad When it's hard to believe Just try me So that's it. Did I tell you we had a great show? The top two Craig's Warriors Lounge participants, George Brockler, Michael Bailey. Thank you both very much. Troubadour Dave Gunders, I did try you and I like you. You're back again. Episode 63 was a beauty. Till next time, have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.